Namaste, motherfuckers, and welcome to Tantric Conversation, episode number 88, Russ Waterhouse. Uh, Russ is a friend of mine that I originally met in the 90s when working at uh, Matador Records in the shipping department there. Um, I think Russ was doing mail order, and we will, I think we tell this whole fucking story. In fact, this entire podcast is pretty much the two of us doing the old remember when routine talking about working there and uh, being in New York in the 90s. And honestly, I kind of held up posting it for a while because I was like, who the fuck really cares about all that? Um, But hey, that's not for me to decide. That's the whole point. That's why we keep everything that's talked about. And whatever happens when the mics are on is what goes on the podcast. And also... um, I don't mean to sound so chipper about this, but a, a guy we talk about on this podcast a lot, Conrad Salvador, died uh, back in March, and um, he was very young. He was our age, in his 40s, and he had moved down to Austin, Texas, and uh, was working for a company down there, working remotely, and uh, nobody even noticed when he died for a few days. Um, the company noticed that he wasn't turning in any work after a while and they managed to get somebody into his apartment and they found him dead in there and um you know that brings up it brings up a lot of thoughts when you find out somebody that you kind of i mean i used to see conrad every day for two years the two years that i worked in matador when it started out it was just the two of us back there and and when matador was a much smaller organization uh, probably 20 people or so worked in the offices and Conrad and I were the entire shipping department at one point and uh, you know I saw him every day he'd come in there often wearing a black t-shirt and he'd take a little tape off the tape gun and get the lint off of his black t-shirt and um, and we would joke around about stuff uh, he was always saying I, I didn't realize till today that I got this old saw from him that He'd always say, Curtis, you're all right. I don't care what Rusty says about you. And uh, I always say that line to people. And I can always tell their sense of humor by how they react to that dumbass thing. But, you know, Conrad and I got through a lot of really difficult uh, times together at, at Matador. We were shipping out a, sh- a shitload of product, just the two of us, every day. You know, like just tons and tons of mom and pop record store orders and um, I fucked them up all the time because I honestly just didn't give a shit. And I, this was before I learned how to give a fuck about the job that people were paying me to do. And, um, you know, I was half-assing it. I didn't want to be packing boxes. I wanted to be somebody. I wanted to be a rock star. I wanted to be a player. Uh, but Conrad took the job very seriously. He was very good at it. And he was well-liked and well-loved by all of the people that worked there and uh, other musicians on the label. He was always going off on these uh, escapades with people like Bob Pollard from Guided by Voices or Matt Sweeney from Chavez. He was a good guy. He was also, he and I were the only people pretty much in those offices that liked hip-hop at the time, and he and I bonded over that. And uh, I remembered these little things about him, like when it was shipping week and we had a big uh, new release to put out, they would buy us lunch. (laughs) We had like a... A $10 a piece budget for lunch. And there was a, a deli down below us that did an eggplant parmesan. And 
Conrad fucking loved that eggplant parmesan, and he was a vegetarian, and when he ate it, he was like, man, this is so good, I feel like I'm eating roast beef. Doesn't even seem right. So I don't know. I uh, People, we drift apart, you know. We don't see people for years and years that we used to see every day, and then we find out they're dead, and as you get older, that happens more and more often. And um, I don't know. Uh, I don't really know what to say other than I remember you, Conrad, and a lot of us remember you, and... I'm going to try and make it to the memorial that's going to happen for him on April 14th up in New Jersey, which is where he's originally from. And um, anyway, I don't know. Back to back to Russ. Uh, Russ and I knew each other in New York. And, um, you know, we talked about music a lot. He's a good guy. And one of these days recently I was on Instagram about a year ago and I kept seeing him post pictures of shows at Black Iris. And I was like, is there another Black Iris? And... In New York, and I uh, contacted him, and it turned out he was living in Richmond, and he, he knew I was here. He'd been listening to the podcast, but he just hadn't gotten around to reaching out, so we went down to the folk festival together back in October and getting in touch every so often. He spent the last few years moving from New York to Philly to Richmond, uh, playing in a band with his girlfriend called Blues Control, which I honestly have never heard or seen but uh, I'm sure if you look it up, there's YouTube videos and that sort of thing. Um, but, yeah, whatever. It's not really about that. It's just about two people talking. And uh, let's get into the two of us playing the game of Remember When. So you asked who else has been on this mic, Who's who's been here before you. Yeah, yeah. Let's see, was, uh, we have... At the we've had Ryan Kent, Clay Blancett, and Josh Phillips. Okay, don't know any of those guys, do you? No, that's the whole point of this. Right, 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 right. That's okay. why they're. Yeah. So, um, the fuck you been doing? Working. Yeah, working a lot. Um, although, pretty soon I won't be working a lot. So why? Because I uh, gave my notice. Oh, you did. Yeah, yeah. That job that uh. You've been doing that's like house renovation? Yeah. I've been yeah. doing it for about a year, and uh, I think it's time to move on. Yeah. I've been working so much, it's kind of hard to find something else. So, Yeah, when it's like you don't, you can't do anything because you're working, and then you don't do anything because you got to go to work the next day. It's, right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. If, yeah if, I've had that kind of job a lot, like where just <laughs> the sheer emotional strain of of knowing I have to go there mm-hmm. means that I stay home and like like get into a comatose state like a beta wave state watching TV eat some food go to bed early yeah get try to be get, as prepared for the fucking shit as right exactly waste time on the internet yeah waste time on the phone yeah so I, I've definitely I felt this way before it's definitely come to that point where it's time to move you know on. what that feeling means yeah you just say take this job and shove it we well, there, it was kind of like a mutual. I think it's. I think it's mutual. He yeah. uh, he knows how that feels too. He's, oh yeah, yeah. He no. feels that way about you. Well, <laughs> both, both. Yeah, yeah. No, he uh, he he's uh, told me stories of him walking off the job before too. So <sighs> I was grouting a floor the other day, and it really it wasn't moving so fast because all these little marble pieces were right. popping out, and it was slowing me down, and. Uh, like he was just annoyed. He came in. He was a little annoyed. I hadn't made more progress than I had, and he got frustrated. Told me, 
just leave. I'll finish the job myself. Mm. So I, you know, I was like, you know what? I'll, uh, I'll take you up on that. Good so, idea. So I left. And then, uh, and then a few hours later, he's like, so you're coming in tomorrow? And I, I was like, I wasn't really planning to. <laughs> and uh, we, we went back and forth. It was like a decent exchange. And then the other day, he, he's like, no, I really need you to help me finish. I, I offered to help finish this current project, which should be wrapping up in like three weeks. So, mm-hmm. And then he, uh, he wrote to me the other day on Friday. He was like, yeah, I do need your help on this. So I'm there for another three weeks or so. Well, at least it can be amicable. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, he's like, I totally understand where you're coming from, and I've done the same exact thing myself. So we had a good year. and uh, It's been a good run. Yeah, exactly. This is interesting to talk, like, thing to kind of start off talking about when I guess our ultimate goal is to have a conversation about something cooler than work. Sure, Nevertheless, yeah. Yeah. it takes up like a shitload of our time and a big part of our life and is usually how we support doing the cool shit we want to do. So yeah. got to confront that reality. Sorry to start it off. On a, on a <laughs> <laughs> I think I may have. Oh, no, I did. I no, said, you're like, what are you been doing? Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's yeah. what I've been doing. Yeah. I, you know, my job, the way that it is now is I don't, there are no deliverables. Well, there are not none, but there's way less. Right, they're not right. daily deliverables. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. there's not like a thing where somebody is like, where's Curtis? If I'm not like sitting at a desk and mm-hmm. whatever, there's, there's, it's on a more quarterly basis. Right. Um, it's like really up to me to like be managing these people. And then if I haven't been doing that all along, then it shows at, you know, the end of the, the quarter quarter. Right. Yeah. So I have a lot of time and it's not stress. I mean, it is stressful in a way and it is draining in a way to travel as much and to have my consciousness spread out over four or five states. Right, right, right. You know, like Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Maryland, Delaware, Mm -hmm. Virginia. These all have to be in my brain. (laughs) What goes on in Delaware? It's such a mystery. You know, it's a tax-free state. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people, I think, use it as almost like an offshore tax shelter. Yeah, Yeah. their their legal, something about their legal identity is housed there so they can avoid some Mm -hmm. taxes. And where, so, you know, I, I just, I work for Restaurant Depot, so we have a branch in Wilmington. Okay. But I stay in this hotel there at Doubletree, and they're always... Well, it's the Doubletree Legal District. Okay. So everybody else who's staying in that hotel is a lawyer. Okay. Usually when mm-hmm. I'm there. And, <laughs> um, and is, so, there, is there a bar? Oh, no. We, oh, hell yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's a bar. Yeah. Um, it's, so there's that kind of activity going on around there. As small as that state is and as small as that city is, mm-hmm. it, you know, it's right next door to Philadelphia. Because right, you right. used to live there, right? Right, yeah. yeah. I lived there for a year. So, I mean, and I think Wilmington is a totally different animal than... Um, like Rehoboth Beach or, or mm-hmm. Dover mm-hmm. or any of that stuff. But like Wilmington down to Middlebury, it seems to be one thing. Or middle is it Middlebury? Middleburg? Middletown? Middletown. Okay. They're like Amish down there or something like oh, really? that. Or Pennsylvania okay. Dutch or yeah, yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. It's like everything's named uh, Stolzfus. <laughs> <laughs> Stolzfus is sausage. Stolzfus is milk. Mm-hmm. Um, it's I think... Delaware, I mean, Wilmington's kind of a fascinating little town because, I mean, here it is. It's a half an hour from Philadelphia. Right, right. And if there was no traffic, it would be like a 15-minute drive. Right, right, right. But it is really like another world, I guess, in the same way that stuff that's not Manhattan but near Manhattan is a totally different Mm -hmm. world. 
and, and it seems like it sort of exists to serve some kind of function, but it doesn't have its own reason to exist. Mm-hmm. But it did but at one time. Isn't it like DuPont? Is DuPont is one of the big maybe things. Capital One or you know, some banks. I think so, probably, yeah, 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 which is down to that whole tax right. thing. Right, exactly. Um, yeah, DuPont is, was the main reason that it exists. and But it has this, like, when you're driving up 95 into there, you see this, this sort of hill, these houses arrays, arrayed on the hills in the valley. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there's a church. And when you're looking to the left, it looks really quaint. Right. And you look to the right, you see the city skyline, and you see the industrial shit that's parked in the right. Delaware River there or whatever, the Christiana mm-hmm, River. Mm-hmm. And there's a bunch of, like, uh petrochemical plants just sitting there so it's like this big sprawling marshland with right. these petrochemical plants seems and, like a, it would be a good place to just disappear yeah someday you know if, yeah. if my uh inclinations to be a hermit ever get the best of me well if you want to go find some city mm-hmm. where it's cheap as shit to live but it's near places that are cool i don't yeah, see yeah. why that isn't happening in wilmington yet because right, right. it's not far from manhattan it's not, yeah. i mean it's right there where you get on the bridge you get on the jersey turnpike right, that's right, that's right. where that fucking bridge is right, you know? right right yeah and then it's right near philly which is philly has basically become junior new york because sure. it's so yeah. expensive living mm-hmm. i've thought about relocating there it would put me in the smack dab in the middle of my your job, like, my territory, yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. now I bought this house. So right, right. Not well, happening. I could rent this out, though. You want to rent? <laughs> well, people fuck shit up when they don't own it. You that's rent true. It out. Yeah. You know that. You don't know what I'm capable of. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know a little bit. I was just thinking about that party you and Conrad had in Brooklyn. Oh yeah, you were telling me about that. You got you just got the apartment, and you, did you get kicked out right after the party? Or? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It I was mean, like the next day. Yeah, the uh, the landlord called, and. Uh, Conrad picked up the phone. I wasn't even there. I was like staying uh, at a girlfriend's place. Like we had, we spent the night in jail. We got out and uh, he went back to the apartment. He had only been living there for like maybe a week or two. Mm -hmm. And we were both subletting from another friend of mine who had um, started out living there himself, but he got sick of living in a basement. So, uh, you know, he was splitting. Is that that friend of Conrad's always used to call uh, Matador and say he was Peter North or... Oh, no, no. I know who you're talking about. He hung out there a few times. I think he, uh, I think depression got the best of him at yeah. some point. That, that was, was hilarious. That was pretty dark. <laughs> Not his life is hilarious, but I didn't know that about him. But it was really funny that whenever he would call, it was kind of like Bart Simpson calling uh, right, Mose. Right, right. And for some reason, it was always Isaac that answered the phone. And he would slam the phone down and say, Conrad, tell your fucking friend he's not funny. Oh, man. <laughs> Like, I think it's a relatively benign joke, you know, to co- claim you're a different porn star every time you call. But I think he was obsessed with porn. And I think that's what ultimately uh, did him in. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Porn addiction. Yeah. But, um, yeah, no, we, we uh, yeah, so the landlord called, Conrad picked it up, and uh, this guy was like, who's this? And Conrad was like, who's this? And uh, I think the, the landlord was like, well, let me talk to Rob, who was the person on the lease, and I think Connor is like I don't even know who Rob is. Oh, and nice going. Yeah, because it was like a sublease or something. Right, right exactly. Yeah, so a legal one. I th- the um, the mafioso landlord was like, "You have 24 hours to vacate that place and leave it in the condition, you know, that I gave it to Rob." So, but she had no idea that was right. Yeah, that was total. I mean, that was really stressful. So, I mean, I think Conrad got in touch with me, and then I had to move in to uh, an apartment with this uh, girl I had been only dating like maybe two or three weeks 
And, uh, I mean, that was nice that she bailed me out. Mm-hmm. Um, was that good for the relationship? No, not at all. Mm, yeah, that yeah. was not a really good way to start off. It's funny you say that because I was just thinking about when I lived in Minnesota, you know, I was in the recovery community up there and I started dating this girl that was living in a sober house, mm-hmm. which is a bad idea. Okay. You know, a girl that's just like, you know, mm-hmm. maybe sober like 90 days and living in oh a women's God. sober house. But she was very pretty. Sure. And I, I liked her a lot. Anyway, she got kicked out of the sober house for some... Not being sober. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Apparently, it was some little story with pills, and it wasn't that bad, but it was bad enough. It was like dishonorable discharge shit. Mm -hmm. And um, she, I I said, you can come stay at my house for a while. Okay. And, you know, just live here. We'll share my room, share my bed. And she decided to clean my room. Say that fucking, uh, what is it, um, Thomas Dolby, she's tidied up and I can't find anything. But she, I, this computer is why I was thinking about it. My tower that's on the ground, it's got mm-hmm. one of those Bluetooth things that sticks out of it. And she just broke that shit off. Like, oh. <laughs> you know, like putting it down there. And I couldn't let, I couldn't stop giving her a hard time about it. It's like, and uh, yeah, it wasn't good for the relationship. So how long did that last? Not, not long. Yeah. She actually turned out, I mean, it was interesting because I had picked her partly because um, she seemed like a very wholesome Medford, Oregon school teacher. Um, nature girl gardening. I was beginning to find, have a interest in those kinds of women after all of the pursuing of the rock chicks. Sure, yeah. You know, that leave you in their dust. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, this might be, you know, kind of a more sustainable sure, yeah. <laughs> model. <laughs> but the ones that are in Minnesota because <laughs> they're, they have a drug problem, right, right. they're rock chicks in disguise. Okay. You know, and you said she was a teacher. No. Yeah, she was a teacher, but she was smoking heroin, you know, like off oh, of the God. foil, you know, like the, the chasing the dragon thing. You but know? she wasn't like hooking up with her students, was she? Oh no, nothing oh, like yeah. oh, not that I know of. No, she just kited checks and did shit like that to oh, okay, you know okay, just yeah. to buy her drugs. And well, that's exciting. Who knows what else? <laughs> but you know, it's like no matter how you know like of an earth mother you appear to be, right. you were smoking heroin. You got some dark shit going. On. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and it turned out her dad was a lawyer in like uh, Cedar Rapids, Iowa. He was the lawyer to the drug dealers. That were in that area, okay. and they paid him in drugs. Oh, so the man. guy was like had a major coke problem. He was in jail at the point that I met her. Okay, and uh, well, this sounds uh, isn't this tawdry? Yeah, yeah. and like you know, I'm just taking it away, talking about my shit too. No, 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 no. It's a pretty I, it's funny. <laughs> it's a pretty funny. Like she told me this story that uh, the cops came to their house mm-hmm. uh, to search it because there was rumors that her dad, you know, was doing that kind of shit. Right. And he had hidden his drugs in her makeup caboodle. And I don't, you know what those are? They're kind of like makeup tackle boxes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of. Yeah, yeah. um, oh, I have one. <laughs> <laughs> Me too, for my goth uh, stuff. Right, right, right. When I go to Fallout, it used to be Davy Havocs. Okay. Um, but uh, she, um, her dad put her drug, his drugs in there, and like, and she, you know, he got her to hide his drugs in there. And I think she was sixteen or something like that. Okay. And the cops came and they searched the whole house. And then she went, she went, you know what? It's not okay. They didn't find anything. Okay. And she was like, it's not okay that he's doing this shit. Mm-hmm. So she told the cops that the drugs were in the makeup caboodle. Oh, man. And her, and her dad went to jail and her mom kind of disowned her for a while. It's like, <laughs> you She ratted him us. out. Yeah. Well, that reminds Snitches me. Snitches get stitches. Right, right. You know? Well, this reminds me of uh, something that happened when I was living in Philadelphia. Um so we moved into a place in Kensington in the winter, and it seemed pretty mellow. 
in the winter, like nobody was on the streets. But as soon as summer rolled around, it was like constant, like people were constantly out mm-hmm. sort of partying, uh, dealing drugs, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, there were just a couple of instances where like the cops would just show up at our door, like looking for the former tenant. And, um, one night we were in bed. I mean, there's like multiple stories from that apartment, but one night we were in bed, we had an air conditioner in our window and we just hear like somebody rustling, like, like, like fucking with it from the outside. And Leah screamed. She's like, what the fuck? Who's that? What's going on? And it was just, he was like, Oh, don't worry, ma'am. It's just the cops. We're just looking for drugs. They like looking. They thought that people were like, you know, stashing, stashing the shit up in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. For to you like clocking out on the street, and that was the spot. Right. No, I mean, the I, drop I, spot. I could, I could have told them where, where to find the drugs. You know, where they hit them. I yeah. found a big old Ziploc bag full of crack in a um, yard uh, in St. Paul, Minnesota. Okay. And at this point, I, you know, I wasn't into that anymore, so right, I just right. left it there. Sure. And kept moving, but I was like, man. We had Two a, years ago, <laughs> yeah. we had a SWAT team basically come into our house, like looking wow. for the tenants. Once. This was where? This was in Kensington, Philadelphia, in Philly. Yeah, 2010. And you, all right. So, some of this shit, I I want to cover it. I want to go back over it, even though we talked about it. We went to the folk festival, right? Right. Um, now, I was I was already working at Matador when you started working there, right? I'm like, not sure. Maybe, maybe. Where you were, you were at the old office, right? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. No, like yeah. I started there in like '96. And... Yeah, I started in '96. I think it was the fall mm-hmm. of '96 because I graduated from NYU in the summer. I like had to take an extra class, so I dragged it out one mm-hmm. extra semester. And uh, I was working at Kim's, and my friend Laura, who used to date Gerard, told me to apply for. Like she knew I was miserable. She was leaving mm-hmm. Kim's as well, and she told me. Uh, to apply for that mail order job, that's that's right. You came in as mail order, and was Stan Varenka or Dan Dan Varenka? Stan was in Railroad Jerk, right? Or is that Dave? What the da- fuck? Dave Where am I getting at least? Yeah, there was two Varenkas, right? And there was there was a Varenka, but I don't know what the other one did. Dan. He was in Railroad Jerk, wasn't he? Okay, yeah, that maybe. Because so who Dan was the Dan was the mail order guy. And he had a little replaced. label too, right? Yeah, Walt. Records, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Every helped. so often, he would come and, and like do a uh, shipment into the shipping department by handing us okay. <laughs> ten CDs and, and a. Uh, I, I don't remember what he put. I think he put out something like Trailer Bride, and then maybe yeah. kind of Fuck, like a. Like, yeah, I think he did put out Fuck, like yeah, an earlier yeah. one. Yeah, and then Matador ended up putting out. Yeah, Fuck that. I like Tim. This Tim was hanging out with my friend and me, and I, I don't remember where we were, but. Like, why'd you name your band Fuck? He's like, because I get tired of telling people the name of my band and they'll never forget it. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's still playing music, right? Is he Tim Prudhomme? Yeah, I see him on Facebook. Yeah. I see Lori on there. I guess I do. I, I'm not aware that he's playing okay. music, but you came in there to do mail order. And this, so we were still at 625, 676 right, Broadway. Right. And then we moved yeah. to the other one further mm-hmm. down Broadway. Mm-hmm. And we had that, uh, that, that funny door guy. Do you remember that guy? Oh, yeah. The Yemeni guy. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, yeah. He always said uh, when it was hot outside, he goes, oh, cold today. It looks like snow. That was <laughs> yeah, his yeah. fucking thing. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, used to, I think I used to like give myself haircuts back then. And he was like, the rats get to your head? Like that. <laughs> I remember you talking about that. You're like, I just feel in the back yeah, and yeah, then yeah. like reach back and cut it. And if it's... <laughs> I, I mean, I was so broke. Yeah. I mean... But also, you know, kind of going for that punky look, I guess. Mm-hmm. I don't know. And then I remember Devil him. Devil May Care. 
Yeah, and I remember him standing outside and like, like uh, looking at women passing by and saying, "Look, no touch." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, he had a lot of, and he used to also do that. I liked a movie, movie. Oh, yeah, I liked. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, one time, I got him to. Uh, I thought it would be funny to take a picture, like a bunch of Polaroids of him in the different band shirts that we had back there. When he brought up the freight, it wasn't the freight elevator because the freight elevator was Carlos, the the Colombian okay. Union uh, elevator operator guy. Okay, but uh, he but he he would help out, right? Like, mm-hmm. and so I got him to model these different T-shirts. And uh, Dave Martin came back there and scolded me. He was like, "That's real fucked up to put that Folk Implosion shirt on that guy." Why? <laughs> I guess he was. Right. You know, I guess my angle was it was ironic. You know, sure, typical sure, indie right. irony that this. Yeah, you know, yeah, you yeah, many yeah, guys yeah. wearing these T-shirts, yeah. but Dave was kind of. And I think Dave was being serious, sort of giving me a hard time about fucking with that guy. But sure, then, yeah. like, uh, like the that, rationale is it's mean to make him wear a Folk Implosion. But he was t-shirt. game to do whatever. He, yeah, you know, he, he had a sense, sense of humor. humor right. yeah, exactly. So. And then uh, where were we going with that? Um, yeah, we were, we were tracing for, the timeline of our association. Right. There. So I was there for like three years. Yeah. And then I got. Uh, and I was there too. Okay. I got cut when um, Matador did the hip hop thing and brought in some new people. Yeah. Me, me and Conrad and so, several other people. Conrad got cut. Yeah, yeah. Pretty sure, like right around the same time as I did, I think. Or, or am I totally wrong? Well, I don't know. I mean, I wasn't there. I got, I got fired and. Uh, 1998. I think he, I think he got laid off too. I could be wrong. Well, how did that work? Like they, either they lost their shirt on the arsonists or they. Uh... No, they wanted to. I think they like let go of several people, like trim the fat, and then they brought they hired several people who had more of like a hip hop industry. What the fuck's they got to do with shipping and receiving? I don't know. Yeah. Weird. Yeah, I guess. I mean, but this is it. But I could be totally. Right. Maybe I'm. Yeah, I could be. Imagining. You could be making that up. But I know that we're like like there myself and like maybe three or four other people all got laid off around the uh-huh. same time. No, I didn't know that. I mean, it didn't seem like I mean Matador was it's so interesting. I mean, especially when I started there, I mean it was such a family yeah, yeah. small clubhouse kind of right. organization, even though it was apparently shipping a million dollars worth of product out of the actual offices mm-hmm. um a year wow. or something okay. like that. Back and, in the the nineties the when CDs sold for like $19 and people would buy right. this. Yeah. There was a lot of money back then. And, and probably some of this was the result of that ending. Right, right, right. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gradually right. nobody's buying CDs. And, and they certainly weren't buying indie rock at that time. So. Not Matador because Matador really wasn't indie anymore. In a right, way. right, right, right. It's... But I mean, well, you know, I mean, it, it... Whatever that means. I mean, sure. Gerard is famous for saying it's the most meaningless term right right right. of course (laughs) but it whatever everybody knows generally what that means right it's just we don't need to split hairs it's right right right. what does it mean though like what like how would you define it what's in what indie rock is because i mean now i think of it as like i don't even i mean what is it it's it's definitely not music i listen to (laughs) (laughs) for the most i mean that's you know for the most part i mean there are exceptions here and there but uh I th- when I think of it, I think of it as almost being just like a shade dirtier than like what's on commercial alternative radio, mm-hmm. you know, like, uh, and you'll sometimes hear those bands like Spoon or whatever on, right. the, on the radio station the commercials. And, and they sound just like all the other right. bands, like the Killers and all that stuff. It all kind of sounds right. the same to me. The difference is we're assholes. 
you know, something. Okay, I guess. <laughs> yeah, well, but it was obviously originally independent. Right, right. right? And I always thought of but, it, originally it were, I thought of it as bands that were, uh, you know, usually influenced by like the Velvet Underground. Right. That, that almost, I almost feel like you could uh, draw a line from the Velvet Underground to almost any band in the 90s and, you know, trace that influence. Do you, but I guess that it's also kind of a, it was supposed to be a sort of a do-it-yourself. Yeah, that that too. And I, I think I've, I've told this story a lot of different times, but Guitar Wolf came to the offices mm-hmm. at one point, and Lombardi came back there to the shipping department, and he said he was look, standing there looking at the CDs, and he didn't know how we had them organized or mm-hmm. whatever, because I think they were in there by catalog number okay. or something. Right, right, right. And he was like, um, Olay. Well, he said, grab me some punk rock records to give to these guys. Mm-hmm. And I was standing there looking at that shit. And I was like, do we have any? Right, right. And I, that wasn't my definition. Sure, of right. punk rock Well, they had, you know, they had like those Bloodstains records. Right, but that shit wasn't over punk. there and it wasn't on Matador. Right, was, right, right, right. That right. was the distributed product. Right, right. The, right. Uh, yeah, the, exactly. So they didn't want you to give the Guitar Wolf the distributed product. No, they wanted me to give him Matador stuff that was... Yeah, what are you going to give him? Unsane, maybe? that's what i was looking at too but even that's metal really or something but but actually the point of this story though is like at some point i guess gerard gave me this book and i talk about this all the time is the pre-punk history for a post-punk world Mm -hmm. because he could tell i didn't know what i was talking about in a lot of ways you Mm -hmm. know because i shot my mouth off all the time sure and, and displayed my ignorance and um and I read that book, and that does it's from the Velvets to the Voidoids. Okay, right. And like, yeah, like you said, and it's that aspect of because they weren't punk, but right, they right, gave right. rise to it's like the them or the Stooges or sure, like gave rise to these different approaches. But the it seems like the Velvet Underground approach was the um, I'm too cool for any of this. I'm too cool for my own band. Sure, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I would think of them as less of like. A punk band. I think I feel like maybe you could draw a line from the Stooges to punk bands, clear, you know, pretty easily. Right, right. But with the Velvet Underground, and, and like so, yeah, both of us agree. Most of those bands in the '90s weren't particularly punk, whether or not they had like a DIY uh, ethos. Right. But, um, yeah, they were coming more from like the art art rock. Right. Back, but yeah, yeah. Those early. I mean, again, I, I'm, I always. I'm, this is from. It doesn't matter. We haven't. You and I haven't talked about this. Right. Right. It does strike me that if you're looking at CBGBs in the 70s mm-hmm. that not everybody was like the Dead Boys or no, the Ramones yeah. they were yeah. there was a lot of different kinds of oh yeah I mean tele- it, television. these are intellectual art school yeah sure yeah totally different that, and that was considered punk at the at least that's true the, yeah as the like, dude who coined the term right to the major labels it's all punk right to the major that the Clash are considered punk and they're one of the other than the fact that they dress kind of punky, I, I don't think of them as a punk band at all. Do you think it's accurate to say that, like, I mean, the, the, what I remember reading in, like, Please Kill Me is that, like, Malcolm McLaren came to New York and tried to manage the New York Dolls. Oh, yeah? Yeah, and he put them in red leather instead of their thrift store hmm. women's clothing. So he made them look like Motley Crue, which is kind of interesting because I think the, that hair metal scene kind of was a hybrid of like a t-rex glam and a and then that that sort of the new york dolls yeah yeah 
that that's what they were going for. They weren't trying to be. And then from there you get to like Hanoi Rocks and stuff. Right. Like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like when Molly Crew started out, it was like it was a shtick. You know, it wasn't like really about teasing hair. It was right. like, you know, we enjoy all of these different kinds of uh, androgynous and like sleazy, mm-hmm. you know, kind of things. But but like uh, he goes back. He he encounters like Richard Hell and these various people that are like you know ripping their t-shirts and writing on them with magic markers and yeah. And he, um, he's like, oh, that's that's brilliant. I'm going to go back and sell that shit. And and he did. <laughs> <laughs> and he started that shop. And okay, right, right. Sex, I think it was called. And then that was like him and Vivian Westwood. Or mm-hmm. and then this the, sounds, uh, sounds right. Because I, I, you know, I've like I didn't. Re- I thought that like British punk rock didn't happen until after New York mm. punk rock. Okay, well, you know, but there's a lot that was concurrent, like. It's like the Ramones were the earliest thing. I yeah, think. I feel and like then, things started happening in New York a li- just a hair earlier. Right, and then you have like the stuff that was going on in Ohio, that's sort of like a bridge between uh, like the Velvet Underground years and you know. Yeah, then that's in like that the book, like and the, the mirrors, the mirrors, like, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Per, is Perry Ubu out of the? Yeah, 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 they're from what Cleveland? Some, yeah. And that's also in this book. Okay. You know, and that book is a little harder to read than Please Kill Me because it's like, in Please Kill Me, it's introducing everything, mm-hmm. I think. And I feel like that book is like assuming you kind of know who they're sure, talking sure. about yeah, yeah. a little bit. And I didn't, but it had a glossary, okay. I think. So you could look shit up. Well, I learned about all this stuff while I was at Matador. Yeah. Like, well, not all of it, but like, uh, you know, like about the Ohio stuff. And, you know, I had no, exp- like, I remember they had like a triple. 10 inch record that came uh-huh. out on scat like like packaged between two metal plates yes. or something like that, that yeah. I remember it's there was the eels and the mirrors and the styrenes or yeah, 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 yeah. yeah so that was my first ex- exposure to that music that was a lot of that was an interesting thing about working in the shipping department there is like shit came in flying saucer attack and you're like the fuck is this right 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 you know and it's or not si- like or simply saucer or stuff like you know all kind of, you know random 50 foot hose CDs like like Jesper and those guys were bringing in pretty obscure stuff you mm-hmm. know? it was cool and, the, and nobody would it's not like they t- cared if we knew it was coming or what was coming no, no, or no, anything no. like that and um we i just opened this box this like really like it's had five records in it from right. some even smaller mm-hmm. label much much smaller label like a guy like uh right. dan was sure yeah you know hey do you remember that were you there for that screwdriver meeting? I was just about to bring that up. Oh, yeah, okay, cuz yeah, yeah. like the, this this box comes from Wolfpack Records and like <laughs> <laughs> and, and then it was like all right, like a company-wide meeting. Yeah, like, cuz Conrad and I we opened it and we refused to stock it. Oh wow. Okay. We, yeah, we said, "Hey man, I I mean, I know this screwdriver is like a Nazi skinhead band and I don't think that fits with like what we got going on here. Right, and right. Jesper was like, it's their blues. It's their early stuff. It's right, the right, original, right. you know, and I'm like, yeah, but the name of the label is Wolfpack. That sounds right. And like where's the money we, going? Yeah. You know? yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I was bringing that. I thought about that the other day because Gerard made some joke on Facebook about um, only liking the New York Times. Uh, what was the label they were on originally? I, I the that the screwdriver was on originally, and people will always say like, "I like their oh, right, 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 era, right. such and such era stuff." I can't remember it now, but yeah, yeah. he's he was making that. Let me be the first to make this joke about the New York Times because the New York Times had that article about the Nazi, the oh, 
all American like Nazi guy who watched Seinfeld and, okay. <laughs> and people were throwing away the papers and I mean it's not fu- this whole situation is not funny but it is right, funny right, right. Um, but and I went oh yeah I did the same thing when those records came in there I, really I didn't know I didn't realize you and uh, Conrad were like the yeah the ones behind the yeah it started with Conrad he like opened the, the box up and he was like what the fuck is this you know well and, you know I mean I I understand both perspectives to some extent, but you know, like if you listen to, if you blind, if somebody plays that first screwdriver for you blindfolded and you didn't know anything about who they were and what they evolved into, like you, you might think, Oh, this is a decent oi. Right. You know, but, but yeah, Yeah. you have to take into account again, like where the money is going for this. That's the important thing is that like that, that it seemed very obvious that that label had, some kind of an agenda, sure. So that that that's the deal breaker that settles the right, issue, right? Right, right. Um, but you know, Jesper said, you know, this is all very ironic because, like, here's the dude trying to sound like you know a blues singer right, right, on right. those first records, and he you know becomes this nationalist kind of mm-hmm. racist guy, you know, who yeah. thinks that his it's not his stupidity, it's the <laughs> right, 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 it's right. all the immigrants that are taking his job. And, oh God, yep. yeah. <laughs> But that was an interesting moment. It was interesting that we they did everybody consider, was around the yeah, table. We all sat around the table and they considered our objection and we had a discussion about it. And I remember saying, I can't be a part of it and Gerard saying, But that's you. You okay, know? Okay. And like, you know, this is a we we all have to consider this as a you know, a group. You don't get to just decide. Sure. But ultimately you know? they decided not to carry it. Right? We did. Yeah, yeah we yeah. sent it back. Yeah. This is not worth it or anything. But it was a good point that, like, even though I was in the position to sort of, you know, because Conrad and I were in a position because we were the guys that either were going to put it in an order or not. We could just, in the means of production (laughs) at that moment. But still to say, you know, to discuss it with us instead of, like, put any kind of. They didn't say, you shut the fuck up and put that shit in the box, you know. Right, 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 right. Like, and it, it really, like. It, it sort of made me feel that they were trying to their best in general to put their money where their mouth was as far as we all were equals. It wasn't like the guys in the shipping department right. were mm-hmm. lower on the totem pole. Mm-hmm. But then Rusty would always, you know, change that around for me. <laughs> well, we don't have to get into that. <laughs> I mean, I don't have, I don't have, I didn't I have, was a fucking pain in her ass. And sure, like, right. I, well, I don't know. But I, yeah, I, you know, I didn't have to work for her directly. So, yeah. No, I mean, she's. I should I should really like think about that a lot because I get like her at the people that are working under me because I'm under so much pressure I'm under so much right, stress right. and I'm trying so hard to get this shit straight right. and I got somebody who doesn't give a fuck and she's probably you know? a big part of the reason why they were doing as well as they were yeah you she know? ran a tight ship and she really cared every single fucking unit right you know mm-hmm. she cared where that was and we didn't have automated inventory then that was right, all right. like. We sold 10 CDs on an, you know, it was a piece of paper that came back there and we mm-hmm. put 10 CDs in there and then we had to count it mm-hmm. like, you know, once a year or something like that. Or Yeah, yeah do an inventory. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And yes, I totally get. What, I mean, I in it's no way. It's not easy to be a manager is what. Yeah, it's I mean, not, it's not easy to manage a bunch of fucking drunk ass like sure. kids that move to New York to fuck around, like not right, to right. have a job. Yeah. You know? And I mean, this is why I've put off being in any sort of management position for a long time now because my experience dealing with interns there and then my right. uh, my next job where I was the office manager at a magazine 
you know, you just get to a point where you're like, fuck it. I'll just do it myself. Mm-hmm. But then that's just not a healthy way. That's not managing. Yeah, exactly. Right. You're avoiding. And so. you end up all fucking pissed off and stressed out and resentful. And yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's like raising kids, managing people. Well, I wouldn't know. I haven't raised kids, but it's like the shit people say about raising kids. Right, right. That you you do have to let your the managing people that, kids. You have to let them have their ex, experience. Like right. you can't make their own mistakes. Yeah, and teach them through their mistakes. And because mm-hmm. the thing that I've learned over and over again is that people are not receptive to what you're trying to teach them until they want it. Right, right. You know, mm-hmm. like until they're, and I mean, I'm even now like having to. Take a breath and say, hey, well, at least the light bulb's coming on, you know, not not like, God damn it, I told you this shit mm-hmm, 50 mm-hmm. times already. Right, like, right. You know, then shame people and like, you know. Yeah, that's not going to that's not going to produce results. No, it isn't. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that was that was a very like I, I consider that. I mean, it, it's a missed opportunity for me in some ways because um, I had I didn't see any future and any value in like a career like that. Yeah. Like, no, I think about that sometimes too. Like what if I had stuck it out? Like what mm-hmm. if I had, I don't know, like, uh, continue to work in the music industry, but, and I, you know, some of the people we worked with are obviously doing that, you know, they've moved right. on to other companies and like Isaac's work, like he was doing like at YouTube. Yeah, he was. And, but who, who all is? Cause like, like Chris Gillespie moved to like Domino at some point. Yeah. And there's uh, not a lot of people that are still in it. I mean, there's a right, right. fair amount that, I mean, there's not a lot to be in. Yeah, yeah. You know? And I know when I applied for uh, a couple of jobs, related jobs, around the time that I got laid off. And before I even got laid off, I had, like went for an interview at InSound. Mm-hmm. Um, and then <clears throat> after I got laid off, Chris got me a, like an interview at Digital Hardcore Records. And, um, you know, ultimately, I don't think, you know, I would have been happy. At, at some point, I would have left anyways. Like, I think... My interest in music was I wanted to be a musician or, right. you know, maybe run my own label, book shows, do, you know, do all the things I ended up doing. So, I don't know, working working for somebody else and their vision when it doesn't completely align with mine, you know, was it it's not that satisfying. It's a funny thing about that. I mean, because I later on ended up working at an agency that was in the beginnings of like kind of what they call brand mm-hmm. branding now. Okay. And... The thing that I thought was that really fascinated me was that they're like, you know, instead of it's like you just tell people you do that old that '80s creative revolution stuff, and you have these ads that don't have anything to do with the product, and right, like, right, right. These people remember them. To like, you know, you've got to recognize what your story is. You got to see if what you're doing reinforces your story. If you're really mm-hmm. who, who you say you are, you're doing what you set out to do. Right. Do your does your employees are they on the same page as you? Do they? Yeah. And that's the thing that was happening at, at Matador at that time is like a lot of people worked there and and liked the job and yeah, yeah. overall, I mean, but but in certain we respects, it's a great place to work for but sure. we, in a lot of ways we weren't all on like the old old people like rusty and and Lori, not age-wise but that had been there yeah yeah from the beginning like, us, yeah. they they were fully on right. like they knew what the mission was right exactly you know and we came in like sort of past that right like, and then there were people who came in after us and it just kept mm-hmm. expanding and yeah. it got maybe um yeah the mission or the 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 reason for being there was sort of diluted right. just as more and more people. Yeah, and I didn't have those feelings about 
music being a mission right anyway it was yeah i mean i, I when i started i like i liked a lot of the bands on the label um my uh, my interest my you know i was interested in a lot of different music just and that just happened to be you know one of them mm-hmm. and um you know, it, it wasn't like I, I like I, it was definitely exciting, you know, initially to like be, you know, working around like Guided by Voices. And yeah. I, you know, I liked Yola Tango and some of those bands. Cat Power, seemed, you know. She was probably one of the of, first people that came along there that I was really excited. Mm-hmm. Not excited, but interested in. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, <laughs> to she, meet and, yeah. she was had a, you know, a charisma. Yeah, and she was. You know what? I she was also like weird in a in a familiar way, right, right. like the people I knew from Richmond because mm-hmm. she was from Georgia, like Atlanta, right? From Atlanta, yeah. yeah. So I, I I appreciated her eccentricity, right? And felt very comfortable. Yeah, she seemed like a it. real person. Yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah, I guess that's it. Like Liz Fair when she showed up there seemed like um, she stepped out of a cartoon. I know it was really it was bizarre. <laughs> I mean, you know, she seemed. Gracious and nice, mm-hmm. but not not nothing on her. Yeah, but it's just, totally, yeah, done up like, like a I don't know, like a suburban mom mm-hmm. almost. Were you there when Slater Kenny came by? Because they were because mm-hmm. Matador Europe put out uh, "Dig Me Out." Right, I right, right. I remember seeing they played like an in-store at Tower Records mm-hmm. um, at some point, and I think I saw them play at like a summer stage. Well, they, that too. night they played at CBGB's, sort of as oh, a Matador okay. like a showcase, showcase thing, and. Uh, they were also like them coming in there was kind of like actual rock stars to me because I liked right, right. Uh, what Call the Doctor Call the Doctor so yeah. much yeah and then at yeah I guess maybe it was the next day because I had watched is it the Carrie which one is the one that's on Portlandia it's I think it's Carrie Brownstein Brownstein yeah. watched her up on stage slinging that SG around and was in awe mm-hmm. and I was like oh this must be what it's like for a woman watching a guy play guitar that like you're like that's rock and roll and that's somebody I would be attracted to <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> well you know what funny thing is um, just a few years ago uh, my band toured with Quasi which uh-huh. was Janet yeah her and her ex-husband's R- duo yeah and it was sort of like a window into my potential future like are we gonna keep doing this like is this going to are we gonna because there's they seemed really popular in the 90s mm-hmm. um i was never really following their music but you know i liked it well enough but it was really you know when we got asked to tour with them i was really excited you know mm-hmm. just to uh because it was like janet weiss's band right but right. um like unlike sleater kenny who are still like seem to be doing really well like you know quasi it was it was a fun tour, but they were kind of definitely struggling financially. Right. The, the audiences just weren't there right. like, like they were in the '90s, and they were at some point pretty successful and like a pretty straightforward like pop rock group. And you know, when we thought about like what are we gonna be doing when we're like in our fifties, are we gonna do this? Like, yeah, it didn't seem like. And we is your blues control. Yeah, yeah, Leah, right. Leah and I. It just didn't. We we started to reevaluate like what are we do what are we doing? Like, how far are we going to take this? Like, mm-hmm. or how much, you know, how much are we going to invest in this in the long run? So that tour with Quasi was definitely sort of like an eye opener. That is so. I, there was one show in like Santa Barbara or something. And, uh-huh. uh, there weren't, yeah, there weren't that many people there. And then I think they said at the end of the night, like, I think Sam from Quasi was like, this is the least amount of money we've ever been paid, um, uh, in our career. 
But then, like, a few nights later, we played, like, San Jose. Mm-hmm. And it was, like, you know, totally packed. And, you know, they had a great time. So, you know, it's just hit or miss. And they put out a really – I liked the record that they were touring on. It was, I don't think – I think I listened to them at one point because I actually think that Gerard told me I would might like them. Okay. And they're they're kind of Beatles-ish. Yeah. Or at least they are these days. Yeah. And he's a really good musician. He plays the keyboards and guitar. And she plays drums, you know. I'm really, really, like, I'm glad that I had the education that happened there. It's kind of like, it was almost like a graduate school mm-hmm. thing for me to go to go to New York and to end up working there and learn the things that I learned about music and culture and mm-hmm. and business, for sure. that matter. Sure. And whether or not you can, you know, this this question you're asking yourself, like, can you can you sustain yourself? you know, without considering that stuff. Like, can you just keep being a creative type? And, and right, right. Like you talk about walking out of jobs. I mean, earlier I, I worked at St. Mark sounds for mm-hmm. a couple of months mm-hmm. or maybe three, um, right before I got the job at Matador actually, or, okay. or maybe a year before sounds was the one that was just up that flight of steps. Well, they had two of them, you know, oh, okay. Yeah, there yeah. was the, the one up the flight of steps in the, in the Brownstone mm-hmm. was, um, was where it used to be the main record store. Okay. And that was mostly where they sold used stuff. Right, right. And then the new stuff was at the little smaller one that was two doors down. Okay. But everything that they were selling in those that store was stolen. Like black market. Yeah. yeah like, yeah, I mean, yeah. let's call it what it, I mean, it was dudes that worked at labels like us that brought in 30-count sure, clean yeah. product boxes. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I watched it over yeah, and over that again. That would happen on St. Mark's all the time. Yeah, like, dude yeah. with his hat pulled down over his face come in there with like 60 like Blues Traveler CDs. And they'd give him five bucks for each one. Mm-hmm. And then they'd sell them over there for nine ninety nine, and they would double their money mm-hmm. and undercut anybody else. Right, right. I always wondered how are they doing that. Yeah, that's how. Okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they were buying them for five bucks each. And they and they had a very like it's kind of funny too because my job was to watch the store. Right. I also worked on the cash register like maybe a few shifts, but I stood on a box and took people's fucking bags when they came in there, checking the bags. Yeah, and I had to watch the store to make sure nobody was stealing. Right. Right. Which is and then then the guy who owned the place was this totally paranoid like cokehead dude who looked like. uh, Look kind of like somebody straight out of the 70s. Like he stepped off of Barney Miller or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, balding comb over, hoodie sweatshirt, kind of that. Okay. That kind of, or Crumb character. Or yeah, no, yeah, no yeah. the other guy, the American <laughs> okay. Splendor, Harvey. Um, what the hell? You know the guy that he did American Splendor. Harvey, uh, R. Crumb like illustrated it. Harvey P. Carr. Okay, yeah, yeah. He's yeah, like yeah. a Harvey P. Carr sitting up there. But, and he's watching me right, right, while I'm right. watching the store. And, and then uh, he's. I want to make sure all this nobody steals this from me. product. <laughs> <laughs> right. right, right. And and so one day I just the point of this story is that one day I just and I had already like I, it was Christmas and I was supposed to go home for Christmas mm-hmm. a, after having to work on Christmas Eve there I was going to fly home Christmas Day and I was just standing there. they wouldn't let me off for fucking Christmas Eve to go home and hang out with my to family Richmond, yeah. and I was standing there on that box and I just. I just turned and I stepped off the fucking box and walked out the door. <laughs> and I had like $20. Right, right. You know? Right, right. And I, I thought nothing of quitting a fucking job with $20 right. in my pocket. And that night I hung out with this chick, Karen Bernstein, 
who had stayed in New York. She was Jewish. She didn't celebrate Christmas, and she was and she and I went out and and drank champagne and like hung out and I partied with her and stuff. And we and I could, and I partied all fucking night and without I spending on, my twenty dollars on the plane with no money. Yeah. Oh no, I still had my twenty dollars. Oh okay. And like I wasn't afraid. Right. At all about starving or getting kicked out of my apartment or anything. It was somehow easier to get by back then, to be honest. Well, if, you know, they can't kick you out of your apartment. Right, it's right, it's right, impossible, right. nearly. And I mean, so. I was paying like three hundred and thirty dollars or something mm-hmm. for rent. You know, but I was living in a warehouse with like five other guys on like uh, in Bedford, like off of Bedford. Mm-hmm. And there's like a piece of sheetrock in between. Each of us. <laughs> I was paying that when I was on Seventh Street, okay. right down like. Between uh, B and C, l- totally lucked into a, mm-hmm. a, a really decent size apartment. That was is close. that you were there for a while, right? I lived there the whole time I was okay. there. Yeah, and er- my buddy Eric, you know, Eric Roper, yeah, yeah, yeah. and, and uh, um, this guy originally was Dave Aaron was in there, and then he moved out. And uh, actually, before that, well, whatever. Okay, it's funny too. Is Adam moved in there? Mm-hmm. He took over my my part of the apartment when I went, came back to Richmond and this was like, and he had, I think taken, he had originally tried to take over Rusty's apartment in Gramercy park. And this is at the point that they were like the rent laws, the rent stabilization, rent control shit basically just kind of got pulled out from like, they didn't do away with it, but that whole thing that you could just slip into, you pay the key fee and you could just slip into some rent control, rent stabilized apartment. And, and and the, the leaseholder is dead or long gone. It's like, you know, but the lease has just stayed, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. active somehow and nobody would say shit. And then they were like paying the supers and stuff to like narc out anybody that did that. So Adam moved all his shit over there. And then that day had to move back out (laughs) and uh, ended up in in that apartment. Yeah. I mean, I think probably that's like partially a product of the fact that, you know, I think New York hit like a very like a low point in the 80s. Right. Economically, it was just it was like before that, the 70s, it was like a third world country. Right. But even through the 80s, I think like, you know, when I first moved to New York in 92, like Mm -hmm. the East Village still had kind of a scary vibe. Yeah. Like, um yeah, it was like yeah. When I came to visit, it was like the only thing in the East Village um, was downtown Beirut and oh, yeah, some yeah. pizza joints. And um, where was downtown Beirut? I don't even remember because I, I was, know I remember that name. Yeah, I was coming from um, the West Side because my buddy lived in New Jersey. Eric lived in New Jersey, and we came up on a bus trip from here from VCU. And we met him there and rode the path train across. And then somebody was like, let's go to this bar in in the East Village. And then there was nobody on the street. There was nothing. It was like the way industrial downtown Mm -hmm. Brooklyn was when people moved in there. Man, I have to look that up. That's like a blast from the past. I feel like it was somewhere like um, on like a side street, like Mm -hmm. 6th Street or something or 7th. But I remember somebody pointed it out and it didn't feel at all like I remembered this place mm-hmm. right 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 you know it yeah, felt yeah, like yeah. you were going into the underworld sure when you went into the east village then it was like there's nothing as dark and you're like there's this one crazy right. little bar and exactly you, everything's totally spread out like yeah every few blocks there may be a place where you'd see people you know like like you know when uh max fish in that right. original location right there wasn't really much that was, it was that in the pink pony right right down there oh yeah the pink pony wasn't even there when was i first and then they moved. they opened up Cafe El Mundo or some shit like two door down Bar Mundi. That's what oh, it was, yeah, yeah, yeah. like a block down, and that was like wow, that's like Indian. 
that's really deep down and then Rivington. What, like seven years <laughs> later, it's like, you know, same thing happened to Williamsburg. Seven years later, there's like hipster stores and, you know, restaurants and bars like mm-hmm. everywhere, every square inch. It, yeah. I mean, it, it, what I remember uh, happening too is, well, first, like, it was it was when I first got there. It was still like when I went to visit that time. Right. Like you could be in a bar. I remember I met this girl at Max Fish. Her name was Julie, and uh, she gave me basketball diaries to read. Mm-hmm. We went to see Pulp Fiction together, and yeah. then afterwards we went to some bar on Houston, and like and it, I think that one is still there. It was called Milano's or something like okay. that, and. They would just shut the shutters at four o'clock in the morning. Right, right. They didn't say last yeah. call, time to go, nothing like that. They just yeah, like yeah, yeah. closed the shutters, and you could just stay in there. You stay as long as you fucking wanted to. Like, they used to do that at Daddy's in Williamsburg. Too. Yeah, you know, if you were friendly with the bartender, just close the shutters, and people would hang out until six thirty. You know, mm-hmm. and, and then gradually, I think things were, I think things were staying pretty steady, like in the East Village until. Giuliani, um, it he just started prosecuting the criminals. Right, right. Like uh, you know, I lived on that block on Seventh where they sold heroin and coke from like seven p.m. to four a.m. every day, mm-hmm. out of a door stoop, and it was just like a normal part of my life. Listening to them yell out the code words and mm-hmm. all of that. The laundromat crew they were okay. called, and it was just you know, I was like, how do they do this? So like, kind of openly, and they're like, they pay the cops, they pay everybody, and. Mm-hmm. And they everybody turns and looks the other way because they basically kind of policed the area. They kind of kept it right. straight. And then one night after like, maybe two years of living there, they the Giuliani's shock troops came in. And they like big police van mm-hmm. with like halogen baseball okay, diamond yeah, lights, yeah, yeah. and they pulled all those guys out in the street. And uh, handcuffed them, and they had these posters of the pictures of them dealing drugs and stuff that they put up on the wood, you know, like mm-hmm. the construction barrier yeah, yeah, yeah. thing out there. And um, and then it was like the next day they were building, uh, putting you know, pile like driving a, in like one of the vacant lots. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and like when I moved down, there, there was a squat across. There was like three squats in the mm-hmm. area, and so I remember, it, yeah, I remember there being some kind of squat slash artist collective on Avenue B. Mm-hmm. Called Collective Unconscious. Or yeah, something like that. yeah. I don't. Well, there was Home Instead on Seventh uh, between B and C. Okay, that's weird. I met somebody in Minnesota who used to live in that place when I was out there for a wedding recently. Okay. But I, I mean, the story that I pull out of that is like they always felt like it was more expensive to prosecute all of that crime mm-hmm. than to sort of let it have the Hamsterdam thing that they talked about in The Wire. Okay. They just kind of let it and just keep it, you know, certain level. Right, 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 right. Of, of uh, you know, keep it in certain places and keep it at a certain level. But then it seemed, but then Giuliani was like, we got a whole lot of valuable real estate that nobody wants to put any money into and nobody wants to live in because that's where that shit's going on. Right, right. So it was kind of like he said, let's invest mm-hmm. the money. <laughs> and but, it worked, I guess. Yeah, it's, I mean, it worked for that. Right, 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 you know, right, right. It, you know, I mean, it's kind of weird that you sort of need a certain amount of crime <laughs> and blight to like make a place interesting. Mm-hmm. And that's maybe that's a really privileged thing to say, but it's like you had to have some kind of guts to want to live there. And it's not like you and I were gentrifiers living there. We were just like, I you mean, know, honestly, maybe we were? maybe we were. Yeah. I mean, I was an NYU student. 
Well, I wasn't. Right, right. I went there to go to film school. Did nothing with that degree, but uh, you know, I, you know, it was probably a gentrifier. I went but there, there was, a, I mean, when I was when I went to NYU in 1992, it, it didn't seem to be like so much of a thing to do. Really, it wasn't. It wasn't even a, that that university wasn't right. as big as it it came to be. Right, and nobody in New York was. I mean, nobody in Richmond right. was saying, "Oh man, once I get done school, I'm moving to New York." Like right. that wasn't. I mean, I was one of the, a small handful of people that was fascinated right. with that place. You know? And yeah, I mean, I I had several options. Like I could have gone to college in Boston, clo- you know, close to where I grew up. Could have gone to uh, you know Rochester to study photography. Like almost all expenses paid. But uh, I got into NYU, and I liked the Velvet Underground and Sonic Youth and Andy <laughs> Warhol, and I wanted to be close. And to you the, put that on your application, and <laughs> you're fucking in. Yeah, man. <laughs> It's it's uh, it's interesting that, that this thing that I thought I was doing and maybe I was doing in an iconoclastic way then is now a cultural stereotype, you know, like the character on Community, the girl uh, played by Allison Janney, or I think is her name, the blonde. Like one of the things they joke her about all the time is how she talks about how she used to live in New York. Right. Yeah. You know? Well, we're, we're doing that. Yeah. We are been... totally doing that for an hour. Yeah. Oops. But we're not bragging. No, no, not at all. I don't think it's... It's just what we have in common. That's true. We both... That's where we met. That's right. And I didn't even fucking know you'd moved here until I see you. I was working so much. I didn't... I didn't, you know... You knew I was here. I knew you were here. I was listening to your podcast. Right. But I really had no time to do anything. I was working so much. You can't even say hi, huh? I should have said hi. You don't have a call. You don't have a right. (laughs) Polly. No, you're right. You know, um, I'm, I'm looking at. A, I'm like, is there a, a this? Why is Russ p- posting all this shit about black? Is there a black iris in New York? Right, like right, the, right. You're fucking there every day. Well, there. Yeah, at a certain point, I started to meet people and started going out, but it it took a while. And uh, I mean, I've only been here like just over a year, and it's only now that I feel like I know a, a handful of people. You know what's fucking weird, man? I have I'm from here, mm-hmm. and I lived here for 23 years before I left. Mm-hmm. And I left for four years and came back. And I left for a year and I came back. And mm-hmm. I left for another four years and came back. And every time, even though I know where I'm going and I know people here, it's like I'm some stranger. Really? You know? it, I mean, that's what it feels like to me. You know, um, I was just talking to some friends last night about doing this podcast, and I was rec- uh, recalling meeting you at the folk festival. I was like, mm-hmm. it was crazy. Like literally every 20 to 30 minutes we'd run into somebody else. I was like, he knows everybody in this town. Yeah. Um, but like on a, in a weird way, it's like, there's something about like when you've actually, I know all kinds of people by name and to stop and say hi and shit like that. But mm-hmm. like I, my life in theirs hadn't been connected for a right, long right, time right. except superficially. Mm-hmm. So there's this whole other way of not being a, a stranger that has to do with sort of being integrated mm-hmm, you mm-hmm, know and even sure. like and it's it's as alienating mm-hmm. to me actually to like my, these people have been living their lives without me in it for like you know four right, years right, right, right. or whatever and i come back and i'm like hey i'm ready to set up shop here what's up hey right, let's exactly. hang out and like who are you right yeah you don't want to be presumptuous right, Curtis but uh yeah i mean I mean, I guess, you know, at some point when I, you know, when I lived in New York, at some point I felt like comfortable there. Like I knew a lot of people. It felt like home. Right. And it also 
felt that way like in Philadelphia, even though we were only there for a year, but we already knew so many people mm-hmm. before we moved there. But anywhere else that I've lived, I, you know, I kind of feel like a stranger in a strange land, just sort of wandering. And, you know, it's like Leah's been out of town a lot this past year, so I have been alone mm-hmm. and uh, going out and doing things alone uh, when I have the time, you know, so. I think it's important to uh, go out and not necessarily to go out and drink and all that shit, but you got to go out and equalize yourself. Uh, find your level mm-hmm. around other people. Um, it's I, th- I think it's a thing that happens like kind of in, um, instinctually or something. It's like a, I don't know. It's kind of like a tuner, you know, right, right, like right. like sort of. I mean, it's not like you, I'm trying to be like everybody else or fit in with anything, but the ideas I have about the people out there in mm-hmm. those places mm-hmm. starts to become warped and distorted if I don't actually go. Right, you know? right, of course, yeah, it becomes exactly. a reflection of my own brain pan there mm-hmm. and then you go out and hang out and you're like oh yeah this is cool yeah you know right <laughs> only every once in a while does it seem awkward like i went to see john waters at the bird recently by myself and um the actual john waters right he was there right yeah yeah no he he it was kind of like a storytelling uh stand-up comedy type of performance but, keep talking i'm not texting i wanted I you just made me think of the you're googling I'm not Googling even. I want to, I'm going to play, keep talking. Uh, what was I? So where was I going with that? To John, you want so to I, I ran, John I ran to somebody who I've, you know, met at, who I met at black Iris and I've seen a black Iris several times. And he was like right behind me with his date. And I, that, that was one instance where I felt a little like self-conscious about being alone. But most of the time, you know, I just sort of go anywhere I want to go blend in. Sometimes I know people, sometimes I don't, mm-hmm. you know, usually I'm not like hanging out anywhere for too long anyways like I went to Hardywood the other night I was kind of curious to check out that band Lobo Marino I was there by myself hung out for like three or four songs and then moved on so what is that you know this jam no but I like I like the uh, the chorus on the guitar yeah, <laughs> yeah. very 80s yeah 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 is it, is it German is it the I think you can guess who this is that bass, how, how rattly and growly that shit is. Once the vocalist comes in here. Oh, Zia. Close. No? Stomp the chumps. Oh, mate, mate. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah. First show I ever went to. Now let's get to the chorus here. Okay. Bruce Dickinson. Yeah. I think seeing them when I was in junior high had a profound impact on my development yeah. as a person. Let's talk about that. Oh, we're not getting to the chorus yet. It's like another verse. Another bridge. Another a verse. stranger in a strange okay, land. Okay, yeah, yeah, that popped into my head. And now, is this? Uh, I just know, happened. To I'm not a maiden expert, <laughs> even though I probably have a couple of their records. Now, is that was that the ice themed? Somewhere's in time. Oh, that's somewhere. Okay, somewhere the, in time. The last record I bought by them. Okay, so which is the one with like the ice theme? Is that Seventh Son of a Seventh Son? Yeah, I think that's the maybe. tour that I saw them on. Ice what? Ice. Like, like everything with like the artwork for the record and what I remember is the there's like Eddie on the cover. 
like uh, with his like just a head and no body, like coming up out of a body of water. Okay, maybe yeah, maybe that's what I'm thinking of. But. Am, am I? Is my mic still on? Yeah, it seems very quiet. So and After then that the, loud ass music. The opener was Freely's Comet. Oh yeah, they were it's pretty freely. good. Yeah, that was good. Really, junior high. I mean, when you're oh, this is junior this, high. This right. is when you're in seventh or eighth grade and you haven't seen any other shows except for like the Boston Pops. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's pretty exciting. Is that where you're from? Yeah, from outside of Boston. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. So what was that like growing up there? I think it's probably like growing up anywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I mean. I'm kind of glad I don't live socially. It's, it can be weird. I mean, now that I'm older and, you know, met people from playing music and I have a, a better, uh, perspective and opinion about it than I did when I was growing up when I was just like angsty and felt like the world was against me. Mm-hmm. But you know, it just kind of, it felt sort of like jockey mm-hmm. and, um, conservative, even though it's like, you know, like a blue state. Yeah socially very socially conservative um and like i said now that i know some people i have a more nuanced idea of like Mm -hmm. what it's like i I feel like it's probably better there's more of like a diy community right uh than there used to be it used to just be you know there like there were some clubs band like if we're talking about music and music culture there were just you know these normal rock and roll clubs Right, like normal meaning like album-oriented rock, like well, kind of well, rock and roll no, shit? just like, more, you know, like places that... Where Led Zeppelin would be playing and... No, there'd be like punk bands, you mm-hmm. know, like like La Pest or whoever might mm-hmm. play at the, uh, Ra- at the Rat. The Rathskeller, right? Yeah, exactly, right, right, right. But you can't really go to those places when you're 15. Right. You know, it's like a bunch of older rocker dudes. Yeah. Well, that uh, that's funny. Cause I I only know of that place by reputation because I I worked for this guy, my second record label job, TKO Records, mm-hmm. and he had spent time there and right, had right. worked there. So was he an worked, older rocker guy? No, he was like um, street punk okay. guy. Like he looked like a cleaned up Sid Vicious. Okay, um, you know, hair always like that mm-hmm. and dressed like that. Okay. And, he had worked there. That it's kind of felt like I think that's where he really got into. Like there was kind of an oi scene there mm-hmm. or something. Okay. But when did you leave Boston? I went to when I went when to you college. Went to college. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I was. But it was like suddenly the everything was wide open. Like mm-hmm. I had exposure to all kinds of things that I wouldn't have been able to do even in Boston. There was, did you have a Jones to get out of Boston, or did you oh, just yeah, were like absolutely oh, yeah. no? I was like I got it. I mean. I, I didn't really have anything like positive to say about it back mm-hmm. then, you know. I mean, I was privileged. I went to like a nice high school. I I was able to like you know do things like work on photography relatively seriously, as, you know, as serious as a high school student can. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I had a lot of oppor- opportunities there, but I just was like ready to go. Yeah, and I just didn't feel like I just felt like there was nothing happening culturally for me there. Even though like my friends and I would scam our way into shows like anytime the college radio station would offer tickets to a show like all three of us would slam their phone lines and and all you know one of us would get the tickets and we'd go to the show and talk our way in even though we were you know too young what was your introduction to having that aesthetic that there was that that created the impression that there was nothing for you there something must have been there for you that like got you into the stuff you you like Velvet Underground and oh yeah I mean like uh well skateboarding like Thrasher oh, magazine important. seems to be an important thing 
<laughs> yeah. Get yeah. a lot of people started. And then college radio. There were definitely some, like uh, Boston College, WZBC. Mm-hmm. They had some really good DJs. I, I Like, I heard a lot of stuff for the first time there, like Funkadelic or ESG or Mud Honey. You know, hearing those things were definitely eye-opening for me. And also, like, Harvard Station. I think it's like WNBR, maybe. Mm-hmm. You know, there were some good DJs there. So it was really like college radio. Um, do you even remember how you got turned on to that? Like, do you ever wonder like how you ended up being you instead of like a typical like jockey guy that you were yeah, describing? Know. Like, you know, was, do you know where that nexus? I don't know. That, yeah, I mean, somehow I was into like Andy. Warhol. I don't even know why I got into Andy Warhol. Yeah, like how that even occurred. I mean, maybe it was just sort of like responding to like postmodernism or did you, irony well, or whatever. <laughs> you're like, but you're 15, right. so like, did I mean, like for instance, I could tell this story. I feel like. I grew up in a neighborhood that was uh, Churchill, right? Yeah, yeah, over here, and the parents were from all over the place, mm-hmm. like in the neighborhood. So there was no homogenous, like white culture. Mm-hmm. No, and there was just like sprinklings of your average kind of Caucasian thing. And it was a largely African American mm-hmm. neighborhood, and very like mostly poor, mm-hmm. and a lot of the, the houses were empty at that point um and there were parents there was one family from like new york connecticut kind of there's another family from england Mm -hmm. well the father was from england the mother was from here and um there was somebody from the midwest i mean everybody was from somewhere different so you go to a different kid's house and there was different Mm -hmm. shit available right there and and then and the notion of like i mean it was like Oh, I didn't have a choice to fit in like mm-hmm. like in first in the schools and then uh, in elementary school and middle school and then in um, high school. I was It was always sort of an alien thing. So I would find there would be somebody that kind of would take you under their right, wing. Right, right. And like high school is my friend Jason's dad who was like, yeah, fuck them. You know, listen to this Kinks record. You know, mm-hmm. listen right, to right, this. Right, right. Wow, check this out. This is Roxy Music, you know, and here's Brian Eno mm-hmm. doing his noise solo in the middle of right, right. editions of you and – you know, and I'm riding in the back of his Crown Victoria and like, you know, guy used to own a record store. Okay. So he was like, everybody has a record store guy in Mark Maron's stories. And like, oh, I just okay. didn't realize that I had a record store guy. Okay. He, he didn't own the record store anymore. But right. like, I can, yeah. I guess when you put it, yeah, when you start telling that, so I can think of a few things like, um, like the same guy, the same friend of mine who, uh, took me to see Iron Maiden. He like gave me like a dead Kennedy's bedtime mm-hmm. for democracy tape, which I wasn't so into, but it was like kind of piqued my curiosity and then I could go to the, you know, the, the record store down at the mall and buy like an SST records, like a sampler, you know, or a agent orange or something like that. And then there was like a, another friend of mine that I skateboarded with his older brother turned him on to things like big black and Mm -hmm. galore and Sonic youth and the butthole surfers. Those, you know, like hearing those bands definitely made a huge impression. I really liked Sonic youth. That was probably of all the, I liked all those bands, but at that time, Sonic Youth was the one that really resonated, I guess. Yeah, so, and they're, they're kind of which like, record was the first one you heard? Probably uh, Sister. Yeah, mine well, that, was Evil. Okay, that was the one that I bought and liked the most. But Sister yeah. was probably the first one I heard. I remember listening to Tom Violence in my first apartment mm-hmm. when I was uh, like a sophomore in college and being like, "This is me." Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is my vibe. <laughs> and then it turned out, you know, I heard about other musicians by reading about Sonic Youth or like listening to or seeing a 
what is that show? Night Flight on uh-huh. the USA Network? Yeah. Um, or seeing stuff on like Alternative Nation. 120 Minutes. 120 Minutes, that's what it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and the college radio stations. And then ultimately I found out like later that my dad had some interesting records in his record collection. Mm-hmm. Like I would... I'd say, oh, hey, Dad, have you ever heard of Glenn Branca? And he'd be mm-hmm. like, oh, yeah, here, here's, right here. A, here's a tape. Because huh. he was mo- he was like a classical and opera guy. But he, So was my dad. But he delved into some more like, you know, 20th century stuff as well. So just and it wasn't really his thing, but he had like a Stockhausen record or Glenn Branca, Terry Riley. Um, mm, that's pretty deep. Martin Sabotnik, you know, stuff like that. He had have one one of all those Know, one record by all those people. My dad had a we. There's an, a wardrobe in our hall, mm-hmm. like a giant fucking armoire. It's like eleven feet tall or something, ten mm-hmm. feet tall, and it was like built for when people didn't have closets. Like this right. was your closet, right. and this thing is full of classical yeah. vinyl. Mm-hmm. And his also has his turntable and his amp, and, and he had a reel to reel and a tape oh, wow. deck and all this shit in there. And um, hi-fi, a hi-fi, yeah. Um, that real to real thing. He like was he when he was in the army in, in Europe. He recorded all of these pirate radio stations out there on real to real, and oh, then wow. he packed them all in a box to bring back here. And he wrote tapes on it, and it never got here. Okay. <laughs> He's like, I should have written uh, under draws on. But where, he had he had two shelves of rock and roll. Where was records, he but stationed? Or? He was in France um, okay. during Vietnam. He got lucky. He actually he has. I just found it from the other day. He bought Sergeant Pepper's, uh, like a French pressing. Or something. It, it, I think yeah yeah it was a French. I mean the all the tracks are the same, but it has a sticker on it that's mm-hmm. you know says the name of the record store. Sure, yeah, he yeah, bought yeah, it yeah. out there. And can't remember. I like finding those like weird pressings of like American or English records, right. normal records, but they would like hold they're, back they're the from, tracks. But they're so from like Vietnam. The, it's like, a, oh, like yeah. the cover looks weird. It's flimsy. Mm-hmm. Um, the labels are have like Vietnamese on them. They're like <laughs> blues image. <laughs> 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 yeah. Those, that's a whole thing we, we could get into there. That, uh, that rock and roll stuff in Asia and, mm-hmm. um, but let's not do that right now. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's a rabbit hole. Um, yeah, people, if they're interested, they should listen to your uh, podcast with Carl Han. I really could have done a better job with that one. I, I liked it. It was cool. I don't, but like, I don't know him, but I thought it was an interesting conversation. I mean, this is the liability of this podcast sometimes is that I just knew Carl. Right, right, right. I didn't like, and when I came back here, I just was like, he'd be a cool person to have come talk, you know, because I always like talking to him. Right, right. And I didn't know he was like making a documentary <laughs> and that he had a show on WRIR. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've had a bunch of people from RIR on this thing. I didn't know they had shows on okay. there. Like, right. yeah, yeah. like I knew Greta did. Like, I, I mean, I just wasn't paying like I just uh, like waded into this stuff and I was like, I'll invite people over that I know. And yeah, yeah. so some in somewhat missed opportunity, I guess, to talk about this shit. But like, yeah. You know, I didn't, I, the only thing I know, I mean, even like from all of that is like, I guess the Vietnamese, like Ross Seriothea or something, you know, a friend of mine was listening to only almost exclusively Vietnam, Vietnamese rock and roll at one point. Yeah. At one point I was listening to like just Turkish, (laughs) Turkish psychedelic. Yeah. You should go hang out at Sub Rosa. You know, that's like, oh yeah. Yeah. Veen and, and Evram there. Evram's really into Turkish psychedelic rock. Yeah. And um, you, do you know about uh, um, what are they called? Uh, any nostalgia? I've I've been meaning to check them out, but I haven't yet. But That's yeah. all Turkish, like uh, mm-hmm. torch songs, kind of. Right. 
Um, Actually, the family whose house I've been working on, the the dad, he's from Turkey, but he owns a Greek restaurant down in Midlothian. And uh, yeah, we're we're rapping about Erkin Kare and Turkish Turkish. Music. I know jack shit about okay. that stuff. I didn't even know that existed, Turkish psychedelic rock, until I uh, was at Subrosa for some reason, and this guy who was having his wedding came in and was like, "Everyone put on some of that Turkish psych rock," and <laughs> and he complied. And well, I remember, I think uh, when I worked at Kim's, I, like I just like all those guys who ended up opening other music, they all left, and I had been working with Helen at uh, Kim's West in the video department, and then they needed a music buyer at Kim's Underground when those guys left, and I remember. There were so many crazy records just sort of behind the counter that weren't out on the floor, and one of them was just this this Erkin Kare record. It looked it looked crazy. Put it on, it's like one of the most psychedelic things I've ever heard in my life. And and and, and also, I, like there was a some there were a lot of cassettes at the store at the time, and there was one that looked really interesting that was from Turkey. Bought it, liked it, and I wrote to the guy for more information, and we started corresponding and he sent me like tapes like he taped before like all that stuff was reissued he was like just taping like you know, cool Turkish records for me wow then you know that's the thing that I uh, think music is supposed to be like you fucking stumble upon this mm-hmm. thing and and nobody told you about it and like it's not like you read about it on Pitchfork or right, whatever exactly. the fuck it's just right. like what the hell's this and right this just, looks weird like yeah and and it just finds you like the fucking sword in the stone or like mm-hmm. whatever, and you know, you just pursue it. And like, I mean, I'm not one of those people like an old guy that's going to say it was better when it was like that. But that's what I prefer. Like, because music doesn't attach to me if I'm pursuing it in a scholarly fashion, right, or right, if I'm right, right. like, oh, I want to be up on what's. In fact, that's what killed it for me for a while was like, like we talked about before we were working at, at a place like Matador and you're getting the new thing 60 days before street day. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, you're getting the and press copies. And then you're over it. You're over it by the time it comes out and, mm-hmm. and you're on to the next thing and the next thing. Mm-hmm. And like the amount of time that you're actually listening to or considering or having a relationship with the record is like just fucking a blink of an eye. Like, well, it's still longer than it is now for most people. Really? I mean, if you think about it, like people just whole records click like, on click on a review, maybe like sample a track, yeah. like listen to thirty seconds, and then they just move on, and then they they think they know what what that is. I mean, I'm guilty of it. You think you know what it is? Yeah. Well, it, a lot of times it doesn't. It isn't what it is on its own until it's like linked up with some context right, right. in your life. I mean, I didn't like Guided by Voices at all when I first heard them. My sister had a tape. I was going to say earlier, you know, either having a record store guy in your life mm-hmm. or having an older brother or having a hot sister. <laughs> and I <laughs> I had a hot sister and got and cool guys made her mixtapes, right, which right, right. she and I would then drive in the car mm-hmm. and she had this one guy David Castleman, God rest his soul, you know, mm-hmm. he left, he died like two or three years ago. This guy was a really awesome taste in music and constantly pursuing all kinds of stuff. And like he made her a mix with like Iggy Pop on it and mm-hmm. Big Black and the Bad Brains and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, every almost at Butthole Surfers, like every band that you mentioned right, a right, little right. while ago. Yeah, and, yeah, I, yeah. and I got to hear that stuff. And, you know, and my other record store guy had mainly had me on stuff that wasn't around anymore. And his son had me on metal. Okay. You know, hair metal. and So you got the kinks and then metal and then... The, and then through my sister, I got 
like New Order and the Smiths okay. and mm-hmm. and then into the deeper into like punk and mm-hmm. all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. Got to get a hot sister. You know, dude's making her music, making her <laughs> mixtapes. Well, I, I, yeah, my sister is 10 years older, but she was listening to like Aldo Nova, <laughs> <laughs> which I like, but you know, and the cars. Life is just a fantasy. Yeah, yeah. Can you live this fantasy life? Mm-hmm. Udo, I like <laughs> I don't usually have the phone here to play around with, but what, what were we just talking about though before I went back to that thing I wanted to say about um, my sister? Before the you started talking about the hot chicks room? Yeah, before the having a hot sister. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. I was making it. What is it? UC? I don't even like. I don't even know UCB that well, but I remember that particular sketch, the hot chicks room. Oh yeah, what was it? I, you know, can you do it justice by no I can't speaking of one thing that I did do for I went through a phase where like for the first time in my life when I, when I moved here I started going to like see comedy which was interesting you started going to see comedy here yeah here like open mics like local Richmond comics mm-hmm. some of them good some any of it funny good. at all well it was interesting certain even certain people uh that I didn't initially think were funny, like you'd see them over time and you'd see that they're getting better, you know, mm-hmm. getting funnier. But yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, you know. Rather than good. Bash, who, who who have you liked that you've seen here? Can you remember? There, I do remember this one guy, Benny Blanco Perry. Mm-hmm. I think I saw him Never there. Him. Yeah, he's a, uh, he was quite funny. Who else is funny? Um, Sometimes they'll just be completely anonymous people. You know, you'll see them once, they're hilarious, and then you'll never see them again. Some, and then sometimes you see a lot of these people, they just go to the op- like they go to every open mic every mm-hmm. night. And I guess my understanding is that's what you should do or need to do in order to get good at comedy. Right. You got to keep. I mean, that's my understanding from listening to WTF, the, mm-hmm. the com- comedians talk over and over again about. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um. Changed my life. Changed my life. (laughs) (laughs) This is ridiculous. Yeah. Good shit. I like having this hooked up to the sound. I can throw a little music every now and then. Anyhow. Uh, It definitely distracts the fuck out of me. It's hard to keep the train of thought for the the proper. Oh, yeah, yeah. The, The phone. Oh, oh no, just doing that, like, because oh, yeah, yeah. you're not going, like, because a lot of times this is about, like, threads, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. like, and remembering these threads and somebody's talking and then, like, callbacks and all this. Mm-hmm. I realized, I was, I mean, and I brought this up yesterday. I was watching um, Dave Chappelle's. The new, new one? Yeah. I've heard it's good. I haven't seen it. It's. Like, like, so Mark Maron was all of his guests that have come on there talk about how you, you gotta, you get five minutes together, you go out, you try to do your five minutes, you bomb, mm-hmm. and then you go and you work on it again, and you come back out and you bomb less, and then, right, if, right. you know, you keep doing it until like you realize which jokes are working and not, and it's like this laborious, mm-hmm. painstaking process. And I had no idea that much work went into it. I just right. thought it was guys up there yeah. wisecracking, and, mm-hmm. and that's, they're just those kinds of guys that you meet at a party and they're just fucking joking around all the time and they make you laugh. Mm-hmm. I had no idea that a lot of these people are not funny when they're not on stage. Right, right, right. <laughs> exactly. well, okay, so most of the people that you meet who are really funny in casual conversation, they're not comedians. Right. So It's a whole other thing. And yeah. like they, So that first hour that's on there, he, it's like the kind of thing 
that like George Carlin and Richard Pryor and mm-hmm. and and even before that like Bill Hicks like mm-hmm. it he's like got a thing he's got to say you right. know and there's ultimately like a whole he's taking you on a it's it's sort of like almost like it's a, a uh, an opinion piece or an essay or something like right, that. Right, right, right. But he's leading you through the various points of it with jokes, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> you know, and it's like that. O- there's the overarching, like, uh, organizational structure to it, right. which is really fucking genius, and mm-hmm. it, and it's like, you know, insightful and and also at the same time, like he, you know, he he assumes the authority of having some things to say about this stuff. At the same time, he, I think, he very um, with a certain amount of humility says, you know, I'm, I'm just a comedian, mm-hmm. you know, I'm up here to say funny shit, right. you know, and, and, you know, there's, I mean, it, it, there's shit thrust on anybody with a microphone in front of them now that has any kind of a pulpit mm-hmm. to speak that you, they have to be responsible in what yeah, they're yeah, saying yeah, yeah. because everybody's listening. Mm-hmm. And it's this weird kind of reverse censorship. It's like, don't you know what's at stake, man? Every moment that you're disseminating information, you've got to be like responsible about what you're doing. And he's doing that, but I feel like it really inspired me because he was getting at the deeper shit than the superficial divisions that we're talking about. He was finding the common mm-hmm. stuff. And um I mean he even talked as if he had compassion for Donald Trump. Okay. You know, like he and apparently that set off something but previously when he hosted Saturday Night Live right after Trump was elected and he said something like I hope the guy's successful, you know. Right, 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 right. Or whatever. Cuz would, you know, would I think what he meant by that and what I would have meant by that was like I don't want my president to fucking fail cuz <laughs> like the sure. country, I mean this is guy Exactly. I'm going to hope but, for the best. Right, right. Even in this worst scenario. <laughs> yeah, and um but you know he I mean, I feel like, and there's not, I don't think a lot of people could get away with it. And I still read reviews of it in other publications that were like, he did this and he did that. And I was like, uh. You're talking <laughs> yeah. about the new one. Yeah. Oh, because I know that I, re- or, I was months. so blown away by it, right? Mm-hmm. Like, because I don't even usually let somebody take me on a trip like that. Right. Like, I'm too fucking chatterboxy myself. I got too sure. much of my own shit going on in my head mm-hmm. to shut the fuck up and let Dave Chappelle talk to me for an hour right. or Louis C.K. or any of those mm-hmm. guys. I mean, maybe on some weird-ass level, like, I'm thinking like that and I'm working on my own shit. Right, right, you know? right, right, right. Even though I'm not, like, but it's sort of like that. Like, I, sure. I don't I'm, I got. But then to hear him, I was like, oh, he's working on a lot of the same stuff that I'm chewing on. And he's kind of come at this. He's found a, a thing mm-hmm. to say about it, and it was really cool to to be taken on that. You know, like you know, he well, it was like an hour long or something. Yeah, yeah. it was two. It's two hours. Oh, two hours. Wow. Well, they're two different hours. Oh, right, right, right. And then I mean, hour in the terms that comedians talk about it. Like, mm-hmm. I got an hour. I just wrote another hour. Right, right. You know, and he's put out four hours in the last. Um, couple years, okay, and yeah, it's yeah. usually, from what I understand, it takes a comedian a, a year to come up with an hour, right? And he's <laughs> prolific, yeah, and it's all different shit, mm-hmm. you know. Well, that's <laughs> and one of them was a big theater thing, and the other one was like a little shitty comedy club thing, okay. You know, way looser, mm-hmm. you know, totally different act. I don't mean just like what he was saying, but the way he was acting, sure, sure, you know, yeah, uh, and it's. 
I mean, I feel like we're we're so busy, like we're tearing down all the fucking idols. Like this is, I mean, I said iconoclast earlier, you know, is and that's like the the was the no wave thing, like kill your idols, and, mm-hmm. and I mean, and to some degree, you have to do that so that you're not living in some subservience that you kind of step out and you go, what the, what's the difference between me and them? Exactly, you're no better you know? than I am, right? right. And and that is the to me what punk rock and DIY and all of that shit is is like they show they lower the fucking step down to where like I don't have to go from here to Wembley Stadium or right right whatever I just need to go right just this one little bit further right than I am I can go from my practice space to ABC No Rio or you know and then maybe Strange Matter or you know where yeah you know. I mean at least I can do it like I could get right. in that game mm-hmm. and. You know, Matador made me get in that game. Right. And part of it was because I, I was like seeing those people come around and I was like, what the fuck? Russell Simmons ain't no better than me. Right. Exactly. <laughs> you know, I don't know. It's kind of stupid. But it was like at first I was first it was like jealousy. And then it was like but then it gives you some self uh, sense of confidence. Yeah. To see that it's just a guy. Right. And there's not that much mystery behind it. Right. Like they're they're just guys, you know, and they're. You know, they've been working towards something for a while, just like you may have been. But they're just fucking doing it. It's not like somebody came along and touched them with a magic wand and they right, missed right, right. me and missed my house. Right. Like they, it's just like you listening to him. You know, people, comedians talk about they're working on their fucking five minutes. The musicians had to do the same thing, mm-hmm. or even I people mean, booking shows. I somehow, for whatever reason, at some point, it just like it made sense. I think it made like somebody asked me to put put together a show or if I knew somebody who could put together a show and I just ended up booking my first show like mm-hmm. for some bands at the Charleston on Bedford and uh, I was like huh and then it happened and it went and then it was over and I was like right. that wasn't that difficult and like yeah. I know tons of people who are like hesitant like they may want to book shows but they feel like th- there's this big mystery behind it or like it's just too uh, difficult to even start but it's like so easy it, it is and it, but it's, it takes this th- moment Right, where right. you got you, you go out you you just fucking wade into it, mm-hmm. and you put yourself out there and you try that shit. And I, I mean, so there's the positive kind of killing your idols, but I I feel like something is going on now that's like there's so much jealousy mm-hmm. that that hasn't made it to that realization that like no nothing magical happened, and you're not being kept from it. Mm-hmm. You just gotta. You got to go get yours. Right, right. There's right. enough for everybody. Go get yours. But it is such there's, a competitive. There's so many bands now, more than there ever have been. And it's so easy for. Well, it's not just bands I'm talking about. Right, I'm right, talking right. about the general gestalt sure. of like, there's the 1% that has everything on lockdown mm-hmm. and the rest of us are eating shit and we can't get out of where we are kind of mentality. And every time you get the chance to maybe rip one of those people out in the street and, and, you know, kill them, cut their right, head right. off with the guillotine or whatever the fuck. It's like that's what you do instead of trying to figure out how to build something mm-hmm. else. It's, I mean, when you're in the thick of it, though, it, it's hard to even maintain that perspective. Like that's been kind of, I think it's been good for me on some level to not be in an active band, not booking shows, not really doing much of anything in terms of like being a cultural producer. Because any feelings of like jealousy or resentment or something like I'm not feeling that so much anymore. Like I'm appreciating things for yeah, what they may be. Like I'm not, I don't have as much personal connection to like new new people, you know, new things. Um, 
So it's like, I'm not I'm not weighing it against my own accomplishments. Right. Like it's just right. So it's been kind of healthy. So you know, so the thing we were talking about earlier that like you know, certain music just would connect with me, and I was actually I brought up "Guided by Voices" to say that they did not. That's what happened is I went into the sister thing and like so I didn't like them, right. but then I heard B thousand side two of B thousand mm-hmm. or so, or I put on or somehow I put on Tractor Rape Chain because mm-hmm. I had a copy of B thousand at home that I gotten from Matador, mm-hmm. and and I was depressed and I had been on like a fucking three day bender binge kind of thing Mm -hmm. and i put that record on and bam like i i I could hear it you know because it sounded so like i was so used to these 124 track recordings and i did not understand what the value would be in recording this you know low tech Mm -hmm. you know eight track Mm kind of shit and then i went realized oh it's because the song is that good (laughs) it doesn't need all that shit and but also people, I think people choose to do things that way because they want to convey that atmosphere or, or the intimacy yeah. of what it's like to just be another guy, you know, another person in a, in a small room, you know, doing things in a, like a humble, that, well, yeah, personal they also, fashion. You know? According to What's Up Matador, mm-hmm. the documentary, you remember that? that yeah, yeah. Put out? They also wanted to record it right after they wrote it. Right. And right. they wanted it to still have their excitement. In it instead right, of right, going right. through this like right. studio time, spend all this time in there and a fucking producer and an engineer and all that right, shit. Right, and they right, just right. want. And the cool thing about that is most bands that have recorded on some huge setup, you go see them live and they sound fucked up. Mm-hmm. But like Guided by Voices, you hear them first, they sound fucked up, and you go see them live and they're like, <laughs> yeah. amazing. You know, right, to exactly. hear those songs open up like bigger. that. It's even bigger. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that personal connection. And then I then after working at Matador, getting fired from Matador, then going to work at Coney Island High, getting fired from Coney Island High, slinking back to Richmond, mm-hmm. and then writing for Punchline, and then starting another band, and then getting work for this label. And then I went with the label out to California, and being in Southern California around Southern California punks, um, it was fucking not. I mean, I I know this is on me. What is this like, Orange County? Yeah, I yeah, was yeah. I was in Inland Empire, like just near Newport Beach, mm-hmm. and the and I took myself really seriously. I guess at that point I didn't really. Uh, I was a stranger in a strange land, and all those people were comfortable, and their way of making friends with me was to fuck with me. Right. But it felt like psychological torture sure. to get fucked with mm-hmm. and just be the odd man out, the fish out of water guy all the fucking time. Well, yeah. And I lived in the warehouse where the record label was, and I lived above this band's practice space, and they were just always fucking with me. So I got a really... You know, and they could see into my every... Like, my, they could go into my room. They could mm-hmm. see, like, they were in my house. Right. All the time, yeah. you know, it sounds totally horrible. It, and, and yeah, I mean, I basically came back to Richmond with PTSD and came back to Richmond hating music scene, everything about it. Like sure. it just hurt me. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like, now this hurts. It's not my refuge. Mm-hmm. It's my fucking torment, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> and it was it was really weird. It was like I had been, you know, I was like this narrative was in my head that I've been in this and chewed up and spit out by it now. A bunch of times and it's no longer my love and I just just shut the fucking faucet off like I just didn't care and I want any part of it Mm -hmm. and I just realized like today or something I mean I now have a little band 
going on out here and I'm writing songs and playing mm-hmm. guitar and I'm fucking singing and all this shit. And I'm like, it's back to feeling good again. Right. You know, well, that's, well, that's good. I mean, it took a long time. <laughs> no, I mean, everything, I mean, it makes sense that you would feel that way. I mean, I've, I've felt, you know, I think maybe I felt some sense of burnout, which is why I was like not doing much in terms of, or even listening to much music when I moved here. I was like interested in comedy for like a good six or seven months, mm-hmm. something new, something different, something I, where I was totally anonymous and uh, like I wasn't going up there and performing myself, but it was just a, yeah, refreshing to like yeah. to be completely um, not aloof, but just like at a distance and not not have to worry about like the the social issues, the social baggage that come with being involved in anything for any. Yeah, of time. well, I think a reality that a lot of you, you don't realize until it happens to you is that you th- when you get your fondest desire to like have a job in the thing that you love, mm-hmm. it becomes a job. Yeah, and it takes on all the suck right, that any right, job right. takes on. Right. It, it, Even like, if it's what you wanted to do, like from the time you were like 14 years yeah. old and then you're in a band and putting out records and touring and you're really fortunate, but it just, I don't know, you hit a wall at some point. Mm-hmm. I mean, some people push through and keep doing it. Like they, they're able to, uh, you know, build some kind of sustainable career in music. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, people I've known like Kurt Vile, mm-hmm. like he's succeeded, but if you're, this guy's young yet, man, what's that? He's young yet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's not that young. He's not. No, no, no. He seems young to me, but maybe that's because he just really—I just <laughs> started noticing him a few years ago. Okay. Yeah, but um, you know, I mean, if where, where was I going with that? Making a career. Yeah, in no, management. yeah. I mean, it—it it felt like, like a at some point, you either have to, you know, uh, commit to something, and whether or not that you're going to lead a life of complete and utter poverty, you know, like. That's probably what the future would hold for us if we decided to keep all of our eggs in the the band basket. You're like a, a Buddhist monk going around with your begging bowl. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah please, like, and I've seen you know I've seen it happen to other friends of mine. You know where they're they may have hit some kind of career peak at some point and seemed really successful, and they can keep it going for a while, but the audiences just get smaller and smaller, and you end up just touring and playing the same venues. You know, over and over and over mm-hmm. again, and that's cool. If if that's if if you're happy with that, you, you got to be a special kind of person, I think, yeah. to not be made insane by that, and right. not right. That's not me. No, I'm not either, and I don't think a lot of people are. I remember reading this interview with Sting, like a long, like around the time that he had just dropped out of rock and roll and was doing like the Dream of the Blue Turtles, sure, and yeah, yeah, nothing like the Sun, and and he said. I try to be, I mean, I was older than everybody else when I started mm-hmm. doing this shit. I was already in my 30s, I think, when he, when he started the police or okay. something. And he was like, I really just tried to be an adult in an industry that encourages you to be an adolescent. Mm-hmm. And I just tried to keep my, I remember that really distinctly. And then I remember other people reading that and going, that guy's a fucking pretentious piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but it's, I mean, it is, it really does take a special person to be able to maintain that, like, um, there's some kind of, like, boundary you got. But, like, that wasn't even why I got into playing. Like, I wanted to be, like, like immersed in this fucking Bacchanal mm-hmm, mm-hmm. thing. Like, I, w- I wanted that all the time. Like, the, the tr- you know, the holy trinity of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And, but then it's, 
just sex and drugs, and then it's just drugs. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, laughing at a joke there, but you know, I think it's the 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 f- ebb and flow of anything, and then learning that too too much of a good thing, no matter what it is, mm-hmm. you know, it's like there's no um, refraction from it. There's no break, so it's like too much of your favorite thing is comes torture like it's poison it's you know i mean like you you like pizza a whole lot but you keep eating pizza and fucking it's disgusting yeah, yeah exactly so my mother has always said cuz she's an excellent cook i mean she's like and she has been educating herself her entire life um she watches all kinds of cooking shows has been forever reads has numerous magazine subscriptions mm-hmm. a library of cookbooks Every she has a basket next to her place at the table that is piled three feet above the confines of the basket of recipes that she's found and wants to try. She has boxes full of recipes. She has binders full of recipes. Oh, wow. We used to go to the beach every year and all different cuisines. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, she she's I mean, she's not too far. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because she makes these short ribs with black rice thing and. Like, yeah, she just hits on things. And she's got a great feel for it. And she really, I mean, it's really, she's really into it. It's her favorite thing. And people are always like, why don't you open a restaurant? Why don't you do catering? And she's like, because I don't want to hate it. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I want to love it, you know. And mm-hmm. she does. She makes every meal for herself and my father. Like, it's a it's a real meal, mm-hmm. you know. It's like, like, and the shit is so much, I shouldn't say shit. The food my mother makes is better than what I can get at most restaurants. Right. And it spoiled me, you know. But it's, an, I think it's an important thing to... Was she always into it or, or did she start getting into it later in life? She was always into it. I mean, I, of course, met her when she was 20. Right, right, right. <laughs> in her late 20s. <laughs> but as uh, when you were a kid, she was still cooking. And, oh, yeah. Right. I mean, every meal when we were a kid, like... When I sat down to dinner, there was a B&B plate, like a glass B&B plate, you know, mm-hmm. like with a piece of lettuce and like maybe aspic, mm-hmm. you know. Do you know what that is? It's like a tomato gelatin kind okay, of a yeah, thing yeah, yeah, yeah. with like a little dollop of mayonnaise. That would be one mm-hmm. week, one night. The next night it might be a, there would be a pear with a little cottage cheese and this lettuce, you know. And then there would be the main course. Mm-hmm. And there was always, you know, a, a protein and a couple of vegetables yeah, and yeah. You know, proper shit, fresh vegetables, not frozen. I yeah, mean, yeah, I think yeah. it's sometimes she would be like with some green giant action, you know, those sure. little frozen it, it happens. cubes. Yeah, that yeah, you, yeah. But, but we had a garden in um, okay. in Chester. So during the summer, we would come, go down there and pick squash and tomatoes and snaps and all this stuff and oh, wow. come back with paper bags full of the shit and cook that. It was your own garden. It belonged to my mother's family. Okay. Yeah, it was yeah, a little, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, and so it was a fucking like like either you would say it was like a, a restaurant meal or it was like the way that the aristocrats sure. would have a meal, mm-hmm. except mm-hmm. that she's preparing it, not a cook or a right, right, right. whatever. And I think she grew up with in a house in Windsor Farms where there was a person whose job it was to cook for their family because there were like nine kids. Okay, and her father owned uh, an engineering company and. So she's that was the model she grew up with. Okay. That like you, know, you, you sat down to dinner and it was like an event. So how often you know? do you uh, go over there for dinner now? Not that often. Hmm. You know, it's kind of uh, and there it is. I need to go over more often because it's like they live only 
very close, mm-hmm. you know. Um, I'm I don't go there a lot because I eat too much. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's every time. Like I moved back from New York, and I'd stay at my parents' house for a few months before getting my own apartment and put on twenty pounds. You right, know, right, right. between drinking and sure, yeah. eating their food, but. Yeah, I mean, you got to keep the fucking love of the game in it. And, like, the guy I'm playing with now is, like, you know, we got to get this. These I wrote all the songs we're working on down on a dry race board. And he's like, all right, we got enough songs. You get these girls to go out and play. And I'm like, why? <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I mean, really, like, why would I get up on a stage and play for people right now? Who gives a shit? Like, what's the point? Mm-hmm. Like, what does this got to do with Um, Because I, I love being out there. Sure. And playing in there and like I feel super comfortable. Yeah. You know, it's like I mean, it's kinda like you have sex with your girlfriend in your bed, that's a good time, but do you want to go do that on a stage in front of people? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know, you can you get a little self conscious and then is it fun? You know? Um but I kind of feel like I should do it. But well, level, I mean, but if you do it often enough, it's like it's like anything. It's it starts like, to be fun like that. Yeah, it can be It's like you, being a porn star. You can Well I you know. <laughs> I mean, I did it. I played in a band that played out a lot, and we played in other cities. And mm-hmm. I mean, but I was drinking a lot then, and I every now and then I would quit drinking and do it. But like, yeah, what well, I remember is pounding PBRs on stage, and then we'd get done, and I could barely keep track of my fucking shit. And yeah, I know, I've been there. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, when we first started playing as Blues Control, it would be like I'd, I'd bring like we'd be playing at like a like a cafe or something like in, in Williamsburg. But I would like bring in a 40 ounce like and put that on stage. And, and my goal was to finish it by the mm-hmm. time the set was over. But then that just doesn't really work. Like then you start playing nicer places and like whatever, opening up for real, you know, other bands playing like bigger stages. And then you realize that's just not going to cut it. Like, mm-hmm. And then at some point I just had to like tell myself after some bad experiences, I was like, I can't drink a drop until after yeah we finished playing and all of our gear is packed up at the very least you know and that was i mean like i wanted I, the first show i ever played in a band was with adam and eric at coney island high mm-hmm. i think and adam was like we're not drinking before because he'd done this before He's right, like, right, right, right. <laughs> what we can do is right before like after we get everything set up and we tune and everything mm-hmm. you have a shot Okay. And then we we play. And like and it was perfect because mm-hmm. it just like kind of took the edge off though I was terrified. Sure, yeah. Up there. And even though I'm back in the back on the drums, I was fucking terrified. And I mean, I remember walking through the crowd to go get on that stage and it was like I was walking to the gallows. <laughs> well, yeah. who, who were you opening for? Ah, oh, man, I don't remember. It was a bunch of, you know, there's there was this girl Mia that used to book upstairs at Coney Island High and she okay. This is before I worked there. Um I still worked at Matador at this point and she had this little showcase, these things she would do because it was the clown lounge okay. up there. And like, was it like locals? Like, all kind, yeah, yeah, just, yeah, just local bands. Yeah. The, all the uh, touring bands played downstairs and okay. upstairs was like, uh, like a rec room, romper room kind of thing. I don't know if I, yeah, I ever saw the upstairs. I only went to Coney Island. You I must have. There were different. I saw the fall play there. Yeah. There were different theme nights up there. Like okay. there was Trailer Park, which was my favorite. Mm-hmm. Um, that was like the Toilet Boys had like, well, the Sean from the Toilet Boys and then this guy Bull and somebody else on drums had this kind of riff rock cover band kind of thing. Okay. And it was like John Waters' world right, up right, there. Right. Yeah, and yeah. I think there was a divine type that um, 
kind of emceed okay. and shit. And then Rick Rocket, who was from the Toilet Boys DJ, that was a really fun fucking party. And then there was this guy Nick, um, can't remember his last name, but he did a party called Tiz Was, and it was oh, all, yeah, yeah. all the, the Britpop party. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I went there like at least once or twice. Yeah, but that was over by like Union Square when I when I well remember. he might have moved it, but it was upstairs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, at Coney. There was, and there were a couple of other nights like that. Like instead of it being like the kind of you know DJ night, oh right, right, straight. So, I mean, it was a DJ night. So it, it might be like I liked, I liked, you know, that was one thing. That's one thing I miss is like it'd be like a DJ night with one band. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nobody, I don't think anybody's doing that here right now. That there's no, like no. kind of a theme night someplace. Yeah, it's either DJs or like several bands, but it's not like yeah. But it isn't set up to be a thing that you would go to every week. Right, right. Like right. I went to like Beaver at Don Hills every Thursday mm-hmm. in my first couple of years of living there. It was like a weekly party, mm-hmm. and, and so in a lot of ways, it was like any other party you would go to at somebody's house, except right, it was exactly. at a bar. And you're going to see people you know, right? Right. Yeah. I don't think we have anything like that here. No. Going on? Or are yeah. we too old to know about it? Yeah, I don't, I don't, I can't think of anything. <laughs> nothing, yeah, nothing like regularly like that that you can just put on your calendar and look forward to. Yeah. I went to a house party last night because uh, I met some friends for dinner. And it was, um, and they were kind of more into the uh, hippie singer songwriter, chill, chill, chill right. kind of shit. And, um, and, uh, but I like them a whole, I shouldn't say but, I like them a whole lot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, not, yeah, yeah. And so they've kind of made me be, all right, I'll check this out and it was in Oregon Hill and somebody's living room mm-hmm. and it, I, I used to always just show up at some house mm-hmm. like that and walk in the back door grab a keg beer and check out a band or just hang out right. and it felt really weird to me to just bust up in somebody's so, house so it was a show it was a show or yeah show, they, they had like okay. six or seven bands I didn't even see them oh all. my god when I got there it was a, a red haired girl playing a Stratocaster and singing and a, and a girl playing drums and was it kind of indie? Yeah, I feel like maybe I know what band you're talking. It was it was caddish powerish in this was you know like, that kind of yeah yeah throaty yeah. voice kind of was it like strawberry something or I don't even remember man I, I've shot a little video of her but she yeah. was using a uh, one of those like digital memory pedals or something mm-hmm. like that and like so she I guess she couldn't sing and play guitar at the same time really well so she would l- play the chords into okay. that thing loop it and then sing and then sing and okay. just be sitting there with our arms folded over the guitar and I'm like who the fuck is playing that guitar because <laughs> there's somebody That's around funny. the corner I can't see and then she would play a little step on the pedal play a little lead and then okay. there was a you know the guitar the rhythm guitar going and then there's a little lead over yeah, and yeah, she's yeah. still singing it. and I was like man just to even time that and like pull that off I was pretty impressed yeah. and um, but anyway it was just I used to do that all the time and it was really weird to me to just walk into some Stranger's house and hang out and watch. I've done bands. it. Yeah, it, it's it can, like it, normal. Yeah, people do it all the time. Yeah, I've walked into several house shows in Richmond by myself and just checked out, check out a couple of bands and then just leave. I was like, "Can I come in here in a tweed jacket?" <laughs> I'm also clean shaven. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. What What prompted you to shave recently? Didn't you have like? A, um, you just got sick of it. No, it was I was trimming it and I like I fucked it up good. And then I just took it all off. But, you know, it was just, it's, I don't know what the fuck I even grew it for in the first place. I mean, it's just like something. It, it, it happens. It, it's weird how growing a beard becomes an activity. Right, right, right. Like, just not to shave. And, right, like, right. and you're looking at it every couple of days. Fuck. 
<laughs> that means it's time to wrap this up, ladies okay. and gentlemen. Um, it actually is. I have to go. I have to be somewhere at six thirty. Okay. And um, no problem. And we've been talking for an hour and fifty minutes. Fifty minutes. Yeah. Oh my god. It's almost a two-hour one. You may have to trim it, or you, you may not. I don't have to do shit. shit. That's true. The you only, can do what you want. That's right. The only issue is when I go to upload them. If they're this big, then I got to reduce the bit rate, right, and they right. get that weird sound like the underwater. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. You should do it to the point where it's completely unintelligible. I think that's how people feel about like this six in six kbps. <laughs> <laughs> Just troll everybody. Um, but thanks for coming by, man. It's yeah, cool thanks talking for having to you. And me. It was good to catch up. Are you like? Are you doing any music now? You're gonna start playing out. Yeah, again? I mean, um, I'm actually. I played one show by myself recently at Black Iris, and uh, then you know, I didn't know how well it went. I, I still don't know, but. After uh, I listened to the recording about three weeks later, and I was like, oh, it was all right. So I put it up, and then uh, a friend of mine asked me to do a release for his small label in Omaha. And then the other day, um, my friend John at ADA Gallery mm-hmm. said maybe I should just come in and f- like and spend a whole day in the gallery just like working on music in public, whether or not like people are there, like not even really promote it. So. I think I'm going to work on, you yeah, know. maybe you could, I mean, work the door at black Iris some, you know, yeah, maybe, yeah. maybe Marty will let you sweep up at uh, mm-hmm. steady sounds or something. <laughs> <laughs> Just get, get the, be that guy. That's like, yeah, I'm on broad street. <laughs> I'm the broad street guy. Yeah. All right, man. Thanks for coming by. Cool. Thank sure. you. Oh yeah. It's great when I'm using my phone. For the music, and I forget to turn off the ringer. Well, there you got it. Little Russ Waterhouse, little Curtis Payne, chatting it up. It was good to, good to see him, good to talk to him. He brought me over a, a Jimmy Page coffee table book as a housewarming gift. That's pretty cool. Very nice of him. Uh... What the fuck, man? I don't know what's going on with me. The last time I posted one of these was January 20th. Then I had a girlfriend for uh, two months after that. Actually, it was the same girl that I talk about kicking me to the curb or telling me no um, on that podcast, January 20th. And then kind of wish we'd stuck with that because we ended up doing a thing for two months. It didn't work out so good. Nothing against her. It's just, uh, you know... I'm kind of like oil and water, and women are the water, and it just does not mix. You can make it. I can. I can fucking put the effort. I can make it work for a little while, but the thing is, is that I can. I have to make it work even under optimum conditions because I don't really like being around other people that much. Like on. Like I don't like having somebody around all the time. Like seeing somebody, you know multiple days out of the week and then sleeping with them in my bed and all that stuff. I mean, I really don't, I don't do that naturally, but I want to be able to do that. So I put all this effort, like I really stretch myself to just sort of have somebody around even when like little things that they're doing, such as just moving and breathing next to me, keep me from sleeping well. So like it takes a ton of effort for me to just hang out with a woman in optimum conditions and then... If anything, any wrinkle gets into it, like they're just not doing well, they're going through a tough time, um, hormonal, any of that kind of stuff, I just, I, I don't have any extra stuff for that. 
<laughs> I don't get any extra reserves of patience, and I just I blow it up every time. It's just like fucking. It's like blowing up the fucking bridge in uh, some World War II movie. And uh, I've done it more times than I can count at this point, and I uh, have come to the conclusion that I really should do the women of the world a favor and leave them the fuck alone. So um, I'm going to put more of my energy into making music and making podcasts. So lucky y'all. Namaste, motherfuckers. Peace out.